October 12, 2022, Police Commission meeting. We have a full lineup today. So, Sergeant, why don't you go ahead and get started with the Pledge of Allegiance? Right. If you can stand, if you're able, for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. President Lyons, if I may take roll. Please. Commissioner Walker. Present. Commissioner Walker is here. Commissioner Benedicto. Present. Commissioner Benedicto is here. Commissioner Yanez. Present. Commissioner Byrne. Here. Commissioner Yee. Here. And Vice President Carter Overstone. Present. President Lyons, we have a quorum. Also with us tonight, we have Chief of Police Bill Scott, as well as Chief of Staff Sarah Hawkins for the Department of Police Accountability. Thank you so much. Go ahead and call the first item, please. Line item one, uh, general public comment. At this time, the public is now welcome to address the commission for up to two minutes on items that do not appear on tonight's agenda, but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the police commission. Under police commission rules of order during public comment, neither police or DPA personnel nor commissioners are required to respond to questions by the public, but may provide a brief response. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001 and entering access code 2483. 9248313. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in either of the following ways. Email the Secretary of the Police Commission at sfpd.commission at sfgov.org, or written state comments may be sent via U.S. Postal Service to the Public Safety Building located at 1245 3rd Street, San Francisco, California, 94158. If you would like to make public comment at this time, please press star 3. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hello, my name is David Aronson. I'm a resident of District 1, and I volunteer with Wealth and Disparities in the Black Community. The following is a quote by founder Felicia Jones. Addressing the injustices of Black San Franciscans is urgent. I'm going to call this what it is, anti-Blackness, in terms of use of force, arrests, and racial profiling or traffic stops by the SFPD. I've grown tired of talking to the Police Commission, to SFPD, and to the Board of Supervisors. Where is the urgency? If the tables were turned and these statistics represented white folks, I know there would be an urgency. When are you going to take responsibility and address the harsh bias and unjust statistics? You took an oath to uphold the law for all San Franciscans. As I said, I am tired, but not tired enough to quit. Tired of beating against a dead horse and tired of our concerns falling on deaf ears. We've reached out to new sources who find this anti-Blackness an urgency, and therefore we sought help from Attorney General Bonten. I've attended two of the three first DGO 9.0 working group sessions and have concerns about how the community input is being incorporated into the working group. First, I've not heard anything from the HRC listening sessions in the working group. Why is this not being provided in the context with discussions other working group members are having? Where is the community feedback? Second, while the latest working group session was held in a Hunters Point community room, not one person from that development was in the room. It is not simply about having a change in locations, but about prioritizing outreach encouragement and notification to community members that a meeting is happening. How will the working group leadership address this issue? Third, for those community members who do show up, there is minimal time to engage in the session itself. Community members have only one minute for public comment per item, half the time of that in a normal police commission meeting, and only at the end of a session, which ran late. While the police commission leadership touts what a great job you're doing with community engagement and transparency, this is nothing more than lip service if they're not tangible and immediate improvements 
to how community members are engaged during the DGO review process. Thank you. Thank you, caller. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Yes, I'd like to comment on something that I saw at last week's meeting. Uh, you had the woman on who presented from the group 3030, and I thought she did an amazing job, of, uh, a really good presentation. But what I was dismayed about was after the presentation, you asked the captain of the police chief uh, if he would consider 3030, and his, to my amazement, his, his comment that he was processing the paperwork and they had already joined up was disturbing because I, I thought the police commission and the police department were working together. And to, to have this gap in knowledge that uh, it, it's a little thing, but to me, it's a, it, it shows something really disturbing. So I just wanted to comment. Thank you very much. Thank you, caller. Good evening, Carla. You have two minutes. My name is Susan Buckman, and I am a member of Wealth and Disparities in the Black Community. We were of the understanding that the GGO 9.01 process would involve communities impacted by pretext stops. Police are not one of those communities, yet there, there, yet there is an overly heavy police presence in both the working group meetings and in the recommendations grid. Five out of nine people making recommendations in the first round were connected with SFPD. When asked about this, Commissioner Carter Oberstone dismissed it, saying, quote, I fail to see how this is an issue. During the second meeting, when he was grilled by a confrontational officer who said, quote, can we all agree that we don't want cars driving around with tinted windows and no license plates? Are you okay with that? Are you? You won't even answer the question. Carter Oberstone held his tongue. The right thing to say would have been, that is exactly what I'm saying. Tinted windows or the absence of license plates are not evidence of dangerous criminal behavior. He seems afraid to be, he seems to be afraid of confronting police officers and as a result is allowing them to totally dominate the process. On the other hand, during the October 6th working group session, he was not at all afraid to raise his voice at Felicia Jones in response to her asking a perfectly reasonable question about the minutes. Later, Commissioner Benedicto also raised his voice to Ms. Jones. This was uncalled for and unprofessional. However challenged they may both have felt, however challenged they may both have felt by Ms. Jones questioning, it was and still is their responsibility as public officials to act in a civil manner. Ms. Jones, founder of Wealth and Disparities, is a community leader who has been fighting this fight long before they ever thought of or desired to be police commissioners. Thank you. Thank you, caller. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Good evening, everyone. My name is David Calderon, and I'm calling in regards to SFDPA case 00046105-21 in regards to my mother's homicide case number 921547783. My request is for the commission to please assist me with handling this matter as it's been intentionally mishandled by the SF Police Department as well as the Police Accountability Department. They are aware that Helen Calderon has misdocumented the nature of my complaint, thus for improperly closing it. Paul Henderson was instructed to follow up with me, which he has failed to do so. I am also reporting to the commission that Eric Baltazar, 
is in properly um, instructing all of my communications to go directly to him in which he's not responding as well. I think it is egregious that I have to ask several times for help in this matter and not one person has responded to me who has been in an authority position to do anything about this. So again, this message is for Diana Rosenstein to please hold your staff accountable, specifically Paul Henderson, Candace Carpenter, Helen Calderon, and Nicole Armstrong. Thank you very much. Thank you, caller. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Good evening, this is um, Ms. Brown. Good evening. Um, I'm calling concerning my son, Aubrey Abercasa, who was murdered August 14, 2006. To this day, his case isn't solved. I just want to bring awareness um, that I need, I mean, that I want his case solved. I'm still a mother who's grieving and it's going to be another year. This year is getting ready to end. And uh, I, I thank uh, the chief and all of them that have given me the media coverage every year and, and, and Brooke Jenkins who are helping me, who's helping me getting my um, son's headstone at um, Cypress Lob at Olivet Funeral Home. But even with all that, the case isn't solved. I, I mean, there's a $250,000 reward and no one's come forth. And I was wondering if that case, if that reward can be upped, would it make a difference? And yes, we're waiting for people to come in and, um, and say something, but what else can we do in the meanwhile so that we can get our, these unsolved homicides solved? Please, I'm begging as a mother and, and I'm pretty sure everyone on there in this, they have children and you got, and I know you know how I feel. I've been here for years coming to the police commission in person and now via conference call. It doesn't matter, but I just, again, I need help. We all need help for these unsolved homicides. These homicides are not being solved yet. And so the rippling effect of of the homicides are still going on and people are still getting murdered and people are still walking around with bullets in them. Thank you, Ms. Brown. For members of the public that have any information regarding the murder of Aubrey Alarcasa, you can call the 24-7 tip line at 415-575-4444. President Elias, that is the end of public comment. Thank you. And my apologies, I forgot to announce that today's commission meeting is going to be in honor of John Crew. Uh, unfortunately, he passed this week. He was a longtime champion of police reform, a beloved community mentor and advocate, um, and someone who would constantly provide the police commission with very detailed, thorough, and informative um, emails uh, regarding issues that we were dealing with and or facing. So today's commission meeting will be in his honor. Next item, Sergeant. Line item two, Chief's report, discussion weekly crime trends and public safety concerns. Provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities the Chief describes will be limited to determining whether to calendar for a future meeting. Chief Scott. 
Thank you, Sergeant Youngblood. Uh, good evening, President Elias, Vice President Carter Overstone Commission, and Executive Director Henderson and the public. Uh, starting with the crime trends for this week, uh, our violent crimes are still at 8% above where they were this time last year, no change from last week. Property crimes are up 7%, no change from last week. A total part one crime is a 7% increase, which represents about 2,700 uh, crimes more than this time last year. Uh, some bright news in those uh, statistics, our homicides are down 9%, 44 compared to actually 40 for the reporting period. But we just had another one last night, so we're up to also bright spot. Our burglaries are down 21% compared to last. Year. 10% from last year when compared to uh, the pre-COVID year of 2019, we are down uh, about 20%. In terms of our um, homicides, we have a 61% clearance rate year to date. Looking at gun violence, our homicides with firearms are at 27. That's 18% uh, lower than this time last year, where we had 33. Our shooting victims, there's a 1% increase, 140 victims compared to 138 this time last year. However, our total violent, gun violence incidents, we are down 2%. 167 compared to 171. Weapons seizure for the year, we have 814 weapons seized. Of those, 163 of those were ghost gun seizures. A little bit on our on narcotics uh, efforts, in the, particularly in the Tenderloin. Year to date, we have seized 75,000, a little bit over 75,000 gross grams of narcotics of that 48,754 gross grams of fentanyl, uh, which is 2, uh, 22,000 gross grams more than all of last year. So our fentanyl seizures have increased significantly, almost doubled. Um, we're not done with the year yet. There have been 420 arrests for possession of sales and there's been a total of $116,962 seized from uh, street level drug dealers year to date. Um, significant incidents to report, We, as I reported, it's outside of the reporting period, but we did have a homicide last night. Uh, this was behind the Safeway on Market Street, uh, like Market and Church. The victim was walking on the pedestrian walkway, and when he got into an argument with an unknown subject, during the argument, the victim was stabbed, and he was transported to a local hospital, but later succumbed to his injuries. Uh, Investigators are investigating some, some leads on this case, and I will update as this investigation uh, proceeds. There was also a incident that occurred on September 4th, 2022, where our victim just died yesterday. This is, uh, so there's an update for this. Uh, this was in the 1000 block of Griffith Avenue in Bayview. In that incident, a group of people gathered in a parking lot when several unknown subjects began shooting. Two people were transported. One of them died that night, and the second victim had been on life support since then. And unfortunately, that victim died uh, actually two days ago, October 10th. The investigation is ongoing. Um, there was a, uh, or two non-fatal shooting incidents during the reporting period. 
One occurred in the unit block of Santos, and that's in the Ingleside uh, Police District. This occurred on October 6th at 3.22 p.m., broad daylight. The subject threatened the victim who was in a dating relationship with the subject. The subject then dragged the victim, kicked in the victim's door, and then that at that time, the subject shot a second victim who is in a current relationship with the victim. The victim and the second victim were both transported to a local hospital. Then on October 9th at 11.15 p.m., there was a shooting at Jefferson and Embarcadero in the Central District. Officers responded to check on a person yelling for help at Jefferson and Embarcadero and located a victim with a gunshot wound to the uh, mid-body. The victim did not provide statements to the officer and that victim was transported in a stable condition. Both investigations are ongoing in those and I will uh, keep the commission updated on that. We had an arrest in a homicide that occurred on August 22nd, 2022. In this particular incident, a body was found inside a tent in the area of Wallace and Jennings in the Bayview District. The victim has suffered a fatal gunshot wound. During the investigation, a San Francisco resident who is currently on federal probation was identified as the person responsible. An arrest and search warrant were obtained from this incident. On October 7th, 2022, the suspect was taken into custody and the search incident to arrest located a nine millimeter firearm with an extended magazine. Search of his resident, all residents also uh, uncovered ammunition for the firearm and a bullet uh, body armor, basically. The DA is reviewing this case and charges are pending, the DA's decision. We also had a significant arrest, arrest in a residential robbery with force and false imprisonment series. On September 14th, of this year at 9 a.m., 9.36 a.m., a home invasion robbery occurred on the 200 block of Onondaga Street. The subjects kicked the front door and held an elderly couple against their will. The other residents returned home and, and were also held against their will as the subjects ransacked the house. The loss was over $90,000 in cash, jewelry, and other items. During the investigation, one of the subjects was identified, and on October 5th, the subject was arrested by SFPD investigators in Richmond, California, not only for this home invasion, but for others that occurred in San Francisco and Davis City. Evidence of the crimes were recovered during a subsequent search of the suspect's residence, and information has been obtained, which hopefully will lead to the identity of the second subject involved in this series of home invasion robberies. There was also an arrest, significant arrest in a battery criminal threats incident which occurred on October 8th, 2022 at 1.30 a.m. Information was developed which identified a, a suspect in a battery and criminal test in incident, incident from a prior evening. The suspect was located and arrested in the area of Golden Gate and Larkin. During the search, 3.5 kilograms, nearly eight pounds of fentanyl was discovered and seized. The suspect was booked for various charges, including criminal threats, brandishing a firearm, battery, and three counts of possession for sales of narcotics. Uh, last thing to report is a significant stunt driving event that was broken up by our stunt driving response unit. This occurred on October 9th at 2 a.m. Between 75 and 100 vehicles and a large crowd of people gathered in the area of South Van Ness and 13th Street. There were several cars in the intersection doing maneuvers as responding units including officers from our stunt driving response unit, responded. The crowd threw bottles, pointed lasers at the officers, uh, which is really dangerous. 
and the officers cleared to cleared the um, cars despite those hostilities. Most vehicles entered the 101 80 freeway on ramp north of 14th Street. During the dispersal of crowd, officers heard shots fired from vehicles performing uh, stunt driving maneuvers, and the officers advised were advised by dispatch of a shot spotter activation in that area. A large number of vehicles were still engaged in stunt driving uh, activity, but no reports of injuries were have, uh, have occurred up to this point. Uh, once the area was safe, officers were able to search the area, did not locate any victims or casings. And I just want to point out again to the public that our investigations are ongoing on these incidents. We've uh, seized over uh, about 40 cars uh, for these types of incidents after the fact. So. Um, just because you believe you may get away with it that evening, we will still investigate. And um, we have seized a number of cars as a result of those after the fact investigations. Last thing, Fleet Week was um, peaceful throughout the week. A lot of people in San Francisco, uh, uneventful in terms of major incidents. But just want to thank members of the department and all the different city departments who had a part in making Fleet Week a great event. And an update for the commission and the public on our 30 by 30 initiative. Uh, the paperwork has been processed. We are now engaged um, with the 30 for 30 initiative officially. And uh, from this point, we have been assigned a point of contact and we are framing out an operational approach for some of the recommendations and our participation in this pledge. So definitely Looking forward to keeping the commission updated on our progress with our 30 by 30. And um, thank you for the presentation last week and happy to announce that we are now officially engaged. Uh, that will be it for my report this week. Uh, thank you, Chief. <clears throat> I noticed that you were reporting a lot on uh, drug arrests. Um, is this because of the targeted enforcement that you um, have been doing on drug arrests and cases? Yeah, uh, that and it's an area of extreme public interest. I mean, um, almost every community meeting I go to in Selma, Tenderloin and surrounding area, this issue comes up. So one of the things uh, is to keep the public informed of what we're doing and hopefully um, get public um, support and participation in working on these issues together. Because it's not just the arrests, as, as we, I've reported in this uh, commission many, many times. We also need the public support, and we need people to be vigilant and actually understand what it is that we're doing, at least on the enforcement side. Uh, there's a lot of other uh, components to this in order for us to move in the right direction, but um, the department and I do get a ton of questions about what we're doing to address these drug dealers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, President Elias. Just a uh, quick question, Chief. I know you mentioned there was a stunt driving response and that uh, some people fled onto the freeway. That becomes CHP's jurisdiction once they get on the freeway, right? It, it does, uh, Commissioner. And we have a good working relationship with CHP. I know that's not what you asked, but a lot of communications uh, tracking these events because they go from city to city around the Bay Area. And oftentimes we're alerted by CHP and other departments when they're headed to San Francisco. And likewise, when they head out or back across the bridge, we alert 
those cities and CHP so they can do what they need to do to keep people safe. Got it. Yeah, I, I think you anticipated my question, which is um, if the, you know, what the coordination is between those agencies. Um, that's good to hear. Um, I also wanted to ask, I, I think President Lass did ask the same question. I wanted to ask for an update um, uh, on the um, MOU negotiations with the DA's office. Um, good news to report. So the DA uh, and I, or our departments, have reached uh, an agreement on the language uh, through the help of the mediator. And so um, we hope to get that to the commission for review and then get it to um, Police Office Association for meeting the firm. So that should be happening. That's the next step. That's good to hear. I believe the prior extension expiration was the 17th. Is there going to be an interim expiration while you finalize the language or should we get that before the next commission meeting? No, absolutely. There will be uh, because I we're going to hopefully we'll get through all these processes I just described quickly. Um, but while that goes on, we have to have an MOU in place. So we will extend until that happens. Um, Given that, I think you know at least the two sides were in agreement that the MOU needed some some updating and some work. Um, hopefully, there's. I think we all share the same sense of urgency. I'll just put it that way. So, will this be ready to present to the commission by our next meeting on the nineteenth? Uh, I'm hoping so. Uh, the language has been done, and we are in the process of getting that to the commission. Okay. I hopefully look forward to seeing that on the nineteenth. That's all I have. Thank you, Chief. If you want it on agenda for next week, we need it by Friday morning. Yes, yes, President Elias, definitely. We'll, we can have it by then for sure. Okay, great. Uh, I don't see anyone else in the queue. Oh, Commissioner Yanis. Thank you, President um, Elias, and good evening, Chief uh, Commissioners. Uh, Quick follow-up based on uh, a question that I raised last week about the increase in uh, young people in detention. Do we have an idea um, if any of the uh, work in the Tenderloin has led to some of that uptick in uh, youth at YGC or the Juvenile Justice Center as it's known as now? Commissioner, I, I don't think it's been a significant, well, there has not been a significant uptick, uptick in juvenile narcotics-related arrests in the Tenderloin. Um, and we, I do hope that we can get this agendized maybe even next week uh, and just show the, the trends of the, the uh, youth that are being arrested and, and detained. You know, um, there's a, um, there have been some increases in violent crime on the detention end, so, um, but the tenderloin is not a significant amount, but definitely we can, I, I would like to agendize that so we can at least give you an update and, and have a report uh, for you for our end of the work. I know probation does uh, some public facing documents on tracking tra tracking their trends, but we want to make sure we compare our front end to what they have in terms of not everybody that we arrest ends up you know be being in the system detained, as you know, but we'll we'll try to do both for our report. I think that that um, makes sense. It, it'd be great to just get a sense of the impact that it would be having if it is having an adverse impact. And that way we can, you know, uh, kind of coordinate with community providers to make sure that those diversion opportunities are being offered to them. So I hope it can be agendized and thank you for uh, the follow up on that. Thank you. Chief, I think that um, Commissioner Yanez brings up a great area of, 
um, that I think that we should agendize about, I think a couple of years ago, you sent officers to a training that talked about the young adolescent brain and how it develops. I think that may be something that we can bring back before the commission and get a status update on. I, thank you for mentioning that, uh, President Elias. I mean, there are, I know, um, you know, the, the DGO uh, around juvenile detention and arrest is being revised as we speak. Um, and I think there is a lot of, um, you know, research about the impacts of, you know, both substance use on the development of young adults and young folk. And I think the more that we can engage um, and, and, you know, enhance our understanding at the departments. And um, there is some discretion, you know, that officers have uh, about when to arrest and when to bring young people to the Community Assessment Referral Center or up to detention. So I really do uh, believe it's, it's a good time to have this conversation. So thank you for supporting that, President Elias, and I look forward to uh, engaging in that dialogue. Great. Uh, okay, so can we move to public comment? At this time, the public is welcome to make public comment regarding line item two, the chief's report. If you would like to make public comment, please press star three now. And President Lang, there is no public comment. Next item, please. Line item three, DPA director's report, discussion. Report on recent DPA activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Director Henderson. Good evening. Good evening, Director Henderson, welcome. Thank you. Uh, all right, I'm ready for my report. Uh, so far, we have uh, this year 538 cases have been opened. Uh, we have closed 567 cases so far, and we have opened 248 cases. Uh, so far this year, we have sustained 50 cases. Uh, this time last year, we had sustained 39 cases. We have mediated 18 cases so far this year. Uh, and in the number of cases whose investigations have gone beyond a nine-month period, we have 22 cases uh, in that category. This time last year, it was the same exact same number, 22 cases uh, of cases that had gone on past nine months. Of those 22 cases, 18 of those cases are told, meaning they have either civil or criminal cases associated with them, stopping the tolling for 3304 numbers, which is the deadline to have cases completed by. We have 10 cases that are currently pending with the commission, and we have, there are 83 cases that are pending with the chief. Uh, as a reminder, we had this conversation last week, and I think we were going to follow up with the significance of the delays associated with continuances and the chief's hearings. Uh, in terms of weekly trends, uh, this week, 25% uh, of the allegations coming into the agency this week were for allegations alleging that an officer behaved or spoke inappropriately to the public, and 13% uh, of the cases were of the allegations were for officers conducting an improper search or seizure. Uh, the full list is online in case folks want to see the full breakdown of all of the cases and all of the case, 
allegations that came in during the week. Uh, in terms of the district breakdown, um, the largest two uh, precincts are Tenderloin uh, this week, that, uh, and those allegations were for uh, officers acting inappropriately uh, and traffic allegations about driving, uh, not following traffic rules. Uh, the other, all of the other precincts, uh, there were five other precincts that each had one allegation and the full list of all of those allegations is outlined on the website in case folks want to read or see all of those. In terms of audit, uh, building on uh, San Francisco Police Department's presentation last week on the status of the DPA investigations, the DPA interim report that I talked about in the last meeting will focus on uh, the police department's compliance with the misconduct reporting requirements, including those requirements on the status of internal affairs investigations and DPA cases. So that, that report will also touch on the effectiveness of these reports and in informing the police commission, the public and other stakeholders of police department's operations and discipline determinations. And again, as a reminder, I'm going to re be releasing parts of the uh, report, the audit report uh, in stages so as to not overwhelm everyone with just pages and pages of recommendations so that we can take action and be more effective. In terms of outreach, uh, this week we presented at the Bayview Station community meeting uh, on Tuesday, October 4th. Uh, and we will be tabling at the Phoenix Day, which is the block party uh, celebration organized by Glide uh, in conjunction with St. Anthony's and the Tenderloin uh, Neighborhood Development Corporation. Uh, that place, that event is gonna take place October 16th from one to four on the 100 and 200 blocks of Golden Gate and on the 300 block of Ellis in case anyone from the public uh, is interested in joining us there or if folks uh, and organizations in the Tenderloin would like to learn more about DPA and the work and service that's being done here in the city, that's where we will be. Uh, there are no cases from DPA in tonight's closed session. Present in tonight's meeting is Matt Stonecipher, who is here in case there are issues that come up that can be addressed from other members of the public. Uh, other ways to reach out to the agency directly are on the website at sfgov.org forward slash DPA, or you can contact the agency directly at 415-241-7711. I'll reserve my comments on the agenda items that involve DPA and the work, uh, and then you'll be hearing from me on those items as well. That concludes my weekly report. Thank you, Director Henderson. I don't see any one in the queue with questions. I think your report was very thorough. So, yay you. Okay, so let's move on to public comment. Well, once we start comparing my report to the correlated cases with internal affairs, they'll probably have lots more discussion. I think that's <laughs> about to start. Just dropping that in there again. We look forward to it. Sergeant? At this time, the public is welcome to make public comment regarding line item three, the DPA director's report. If you'd like to make public comment, please press star three.
Caller, can you hear me? At present last, there is no public comment. Thank you. Next item. Line item four, commission reports, discussion. Commission reports will be limited to a brief description of activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, and commission announcements and schedule of items identified for consideration at a future commission meeting. Action. Great. Commissioners, I'm going to turn it over to Commissioner Benedicto. Uh, thank you, President Elias. Um, a couple of things to report. Um, as, as you know, President Elias, Vice President Cardoberson, and I attended the uh, latest working group for DGO 9.01 on pretext stops and <clears throat> had a productive discussion with uh, members of the working group and the subject matter experts there. Um, the next scheduled meeting of that working group is uh, next Thursday, October 20th. Uh, the location might be in flux, so members of the public should check the commission website in case that location um, does change. Um, next week, uh, Commissioner Walker and I are hopefully going to avoid getting hit by paintballs again and uh, attend the CMCR class. I believe DPA, uh, as well as other departments who are, are learning from our FTFO program, will also be in attendance. So it'll be uh, a well-attended set of trainings um, next week. I also wanted to provide an update on some of the department general orders that uh, President Elias has assigned to me. Um, so for department general order 5.07, rights of onlookers, uh, we expect that to go into concurrence soon. And I'll report once that goes into concurrence and once it does under DGO 3.01, the 40 day uh, clock will start once it enters concurrence. On um, Department General Order 6.16, sexual assaults, 6.18, warrant arrests, and 7.01, 7 juvenile policy, and 7.02, psychological evaluation of juveniles. Uh, we're convening meetings with the department uh, and subject matter experts on those four Department General Orders. On Department General Orders 9.03, chemical testing for DUI, 10.11 body-worn camera, and 6.01 and 02 crime scene and physical evidence. Uh, we're also convening meetings. Those are high-priority ones, particularly 10.11 on body-worn camera. That's been pending, and I've been uh, since before I was on the commission. I've been I used to write letters to the commission on behalf of the Bar Association on 10.11, so I'm well aware of its importance and eager to move it forward. Um, so we are starting the 90-day clock on those. That's 9.03 chemical testing for DUI, 10.11 body-worn camera, and 6.01 and 02 crime scene and physical evidence uh, starting the 90-day clock pursuant uh, to 3.01 on those DGOs. And that is my report. Thank you so much, Commissioner Benedicto. Um, we appreciate your leadership on getting those DGOs moving and getting guiding them through. Uh, <clears throat> Commissioner Walker. I didn't realize I was up in the queue. Um, I um, am really looking forward to getting together with you, Commissioner Benedicta. We had a really, um, it was really a, a moving experience really to go to watch the active shooter trainings. And um, it really gives you a sense of sort of the issue and 
the training we're doing. So I'm looking forward to that. But I also, um, I've been meeting with a lot of the um, neighborhood groups around safety, um, some folks in the uh, south of market area. And then I went to a neighborhood organized meeting in the um, mission last week, um, organized by some of the community leaders there. Um, Captain Lazar was there. A lot of the department heads were there. And it's dealing with um, an issue. I'm also meeting with, um, you know, some of the ambassador groups and the alchemy groups and the various <laughs> people out there active in the very complicated response to safety in our streets. So um, I think that it's true. I, I concur with the chief that almost everyone I speak to at these community meetings, their priority is safety in the streets. And so I really appreciate that everybody is coming forward and talking about it, how we can make, um, be supportive of um suggested changes and encourage the community to weigh in and do it in a way that that honors the reforms that we've committed to. Um, I think the process is undergoing um, bringing all the partners together. So I'm heartened by that. Um, I know that there's a lot of tension around it all. And I, um, I think that there's enough partners if we have good coordination to do it. So I, I'm excited to be part of the conversation. And at some point soon, hopefully we'll do an update as an agenda item and I'll just keep you posted. Um, I've also um, checked in with both um, the DPA and um, the department to get an update on my list and um, they are all in process. Um, something coming, I think one of them might be coming forward soon, but I wanna first say I've also um, been meeting with folks in the community uh, regarding DGO 522 around issues interacting with transgender, gender variant, non-binary individuals. Um, I'm, it's not currently on a list of revisions. It was adopted in 2018, but there has been a recommendation to do a working, to um, do a community stakeholder working group to, to get some input from folks. So I wanna, re I've been reaching out to community group um, members and folks in the community um, in our LGBT community to hear, you know, who, who we should include and, and go through that process. Um, the, everything else is in process. Um, there's some that are, um, I don't know all the anachronisms by heart like you do, Commissioner Benedicto, but the, um, there's several that are in the process of concurrence. There's some that are being edited and going through that process um, before going through um, the next steps. Um, the most intra the behavioral science unit um, that is actually being there's some edits being looked at within the department and then the revised draft is going to go back to the um, uh, DPA and then we'll uh, bring it forward through the process so um, I'm trying to, you know, get up to speed on the background of what's been happening so far, specifically rather than just the um, the, the strategy. So, anyway, I'm, you know, thank you for letting me update, and I'm excited about the potential for really, um, you know, having the right people in the right place out on the the streets to help keep them safe. So, thank you. Great, thank you so much for your update, Commissioner Walk. Walker, um, we again appreciate your leadership on um, 
taking the assignment and starting to move these DGOs through. It's also my understanding that you are also going to be um, the provide leadership on uh, special patrols. Um, we did get we've, we've been getting updates because that's part of the converse, the broader conversation about them possibly that that type of thing filling a gap that's out there uh, being the touch and there's a lot of you know groups that are the areas like the um, Soma, Lower Polk, and the Mission are all looking at forming these community groups to assist this process. And it relates to the issue of, you know, how how we approach folks out in the street who we're trying to encourage into services. And um, I think it's a real important conversation. And I really, I mean, everybody's like, oh, well, because... <laughs> You know, it's not been really activated in a long time or talked about, but it seems like it would be a good fit in some of the gaps that are occurring around um, who's who's on third kind of. Yeah, yeah. no, great. And I look forward to that. have to explain that. That kind of dates me, but. <laughs> um, all right, thank you. No, I look forward to your presentation and thank you for reaching out. Commissioner Yee, were you able to reach out to DPA or the department on the assigned DGOs? Uh, not yet. Uh, I was going uh, to get get home this uh, this coming week. Uh, just uh, let you know. Also working on the doing outreach to the Southeast community, and I've uh, been reaching out to the Asian Pacific American Center. Uh, that's one of the more underserving community that's more the monolingos out there. Uh, I know there have been impact uh, quite a bit out there and uh, I've been hearing a lot from them. They've been calling me. So that's that's sort of my focus. And of uh, 614, I think uh, that's the one I would talk about uh, last last week. Uh, that's uh, I think is um, one of the most uh, impact uh, DGO that's out there. It's the 55150, which uh, many of the victims and uh, perpetrators, you know, they're, they're on both sides of that fence because they're impacted. And how do we handle uh, this, this issue? So, uh, I know it's a sensitive issue uh, regarding the safety of the, the victims, as well as, you know, making sure that uh, perpetrators are served correctly, making sure that they don't come out inappropriately and making sure that uh, the needs are met. So hopefully we get some legislation going through the Board of Supervisors on that. Um, on the others, uh, DGOs, uh, it's a work in progress. Thank well, you we'll look forward to your update next week. Thank you. Commissioner Byrne, have you had a chance to reach out to DPA or the department on your DGOs? Mm -hmm. Not yet, uh, Madam President. Um, I was on uh, vacation uh, in uh, the last weeks of September, and there's a uh, com complicated disciplinary case um, that is supposed to be in front of the commission in closed session next week. It's a number of issues, and so it involves four individual officers. So my concentration is on that presentation for next week. So I should be able to report uh, to the commission in November on the status of the DGOs once that uh, that case, which has involved three separate hearings, uh, is completed. Great, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm told that DPA and the department are looking forward to working with both of you on getting the DGOs. 
I know Commissioner Yanez, you've reached out to them and you provided an update last week. Do you have an update this week? I do not have anything new other than I am in contact with the department uh, to identify which of the DGOs that I've been assigned require working groups. There is a question as to uh, whether there's a specific uh, expectation for that. And I, I should have an update on that finalized um, by next week. Thank you for that. Vice President Carter Overstone. Um, nothing for me um, other than um, you know, Commissioner Benedicto already noted that that um, he, myself, and President Elias all attended the DGO 9.01 working group last week where uh, it was a productive meeting and we're, we're now in the, the final stretch of the working group process and the next meeting is scheduled to be our, our last working group. So looking forward to that. Thank you so much. Uh, and for me, my update uh, is that I began the 90-day clock on DGO 5.08, which is the non-uniformed officers. I'm told that an, um, we uh, I've received emails from DPA and the department that we will be setting up a meeting hopefully next week uh, regarding the identification of the subject matter expert for this DGO and that we can begin the process and get this DGO uh, started. Uh, and then with respect to the other DGOs that I have assigned, I have not, um, there is no updates with those this week, but hopefully next week we'll have an update. So thank you again, commissioners, for your participation and leadership in all of the DGOs and moving them forward. I appreciate it. All right, let's turn over to public comment. <clears throat> At this time, the public is now welcome to make public comment regarding line item four, commission reports. If you'd like to make public comment, please press star three. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Caller, you have two minutes. And President Lyons, there is no public comment. Great, thank you. Next item, please. Line item five, status update on chapter 19B, surveillance technology legislation, discussion and possible action. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. I was just going to ask. Thank you, uh, Sergeant Youngblood. Yes, Aja Steves, um, Special Assistant Aja Steves will present, and I will also be available to answer questions uh, from the Commission. Thank you, Aja. Hello. Good evening, Commissioners. My name is Aja Steves, Special Projects Manager here in the Chief's Office, SFPD. Uh, today, I'm going to provide an overview of SF Admin Code 19B as a follow-up to the overview I gave in July. That was a verbal report. This is an actual presentation. But specifically, I will discuss the non-city entity surveillance camera policy, STP, and ordinance that was approved by the board uh, at the end of September. So, um, Sergeant Youngblood, if you could put up the presentation, please. We can go to the next slide, please. Thank you. Uh, so I'll give it just an overview of the typical 19B STP and SIR process. You'll hear me say those acronyms uh, over and over. STP is our surveillance technology policy. SIR is your surveillance impact report. And these are acronyms created by COIT. COIT is your committee on um, information technology here in the city. And they're the ones that set up the schedule based on your inventory that you have of your surveillance technology, or the department can request to be put on schedule. 
often departments will add uh, ask to be put on schedule because of license agreements that are needing renewals or contracts that need renewals. Um, in this case, with the non-city entity surveillance camera policy, it was scheduled because of competing ballot measures, one put in front by the mayor and another competing ballot measure from uh, Supervisor Peskin, which is what created the timeline of the STP and SIR for the non-city entity surveillance camera. So the tool inventory category that we're mentioning here in the first bullet is essentially quite particularly likes hearing all of the equipment that the city departments have together. So if we have audio tools, they want to hear the audio recording tools together. The video recording tools, they want to hear those together. If there are departments that have um, body-worn cameras, they want to hear those together. But again, that was the goal. But essentially what's happening is departments are putting forth their timelines and quite as agreeable. Next, the department uh, subject matter expert will draft the STP and the SIR. And again, these templates are provided by COIT. Um, and the Privacy Surveillance Advisory Board, which I'll call PSAB, they have an internal working group, which will do a first review of the SIR and STP, provide comments or questions. The department will take those comments and questions into consideration, resubmit the SIR and STP. Um, there's a scheduled PSAB hearing. Um, PSAB is the Privacy Surveillance Advisory Board. They were put together by COIT to help comply with 19B requirements. Uh, so they're the first body that hears all the departments, STPs, and SIRs. If PSAB likes what they see, they'll vote to recommend this forward to COIT. COIT will then hold hearings to ask more questions. Then if COIT uh, approves, they'll send it forward to the Board of Supervisors, which will assign it to committee. Rules Committee is the committee that hears all of the 19B policies throughout the city. Rules will hold hearings and then they'll move it forward to full board. The department will then receive the approval through the Board of Supervisors Ordinance and then update the STPs and SIRs accordingly, post um, on the websites and disseminate to members. Next slide, please. Thank you. Um, so COIT STP and SIR template. In addition to the authorized use and prohibitions, uh, what information do we have to put in? So COIT created a toolkit, which they send out to all of the departments. And these are the questions that every department is required to answer. So does the department need this technology? What public safety issue is this technology helping to address? What is the technology's capacity? What kind of data does the technology collect? Uh, how is the data stored, retained, protected, or shared? What are the privacy implications of this technology? How much will it cost the department? What are the risks? What are the civil liberties risks? What are our public information uh, requests risks? Community relations, data breaches, and even potential litigation. So we have to put all of these forward in the STP and SIR for consideration. Next slide, please. So also required through 19B, the STP must be developed through a public hearing process. Again, uh, 19B names COIT the body that develops the STP with the uh, SIR information. So our first hearing in front of PSAB was March 25th. We were in front of PSAB. PSAB had questions and comments. We came back again March 31st. PSAB then moved it forward to COIT. We had a hearing on April 7th. COIT had comments and questions. We returned on April 21st. Uh, then it was moved forward to committee. So it was heard by the Rules Committee on July 11th. We went back again on July 18th. We had the verbal presentation to this body, the Police Commission. And then July 25th, we went back to the Rules Committee. 
At the time, the city attorney believed that the there were substantive edits, so it required a longer posting period, which is why it held on through the August recess. Um, September 12th, we had another rules committee hearing. September 20th, it went to full board for the first reading. September 27th was the second reading. And here we are, um, October 12th. Now, to tell you one of the largest, the most substantive edit once it hit rules was this 15 month sunset provision. So this allows the city attorney's office to remove uh, this part of the admin code at the end of 15 months if the board of supervisors chooses not to continue our STP and they choose, or if they choose not to amend it. So this really is only active for 15 months. We have to prove ourselves within that 15 month period in order for it to continue. Next slide, please. So I won't read all of this verbatim, you have these in front of you, but we have three use cases that are authorized through the STP and the ordinance. We have one, we have temporary live monitoring under specific circumstances. Uh, it also puts a cap on how long we can monitor. Uh, it also prohibits us from recording uh, the monitoring. So it's just essentially streaming, it's live streaming. It's not footage that we will capture. We're not gonna have 24 hours worth of footage to take with us. It's just monitoring. Our second is requesting, obtaining and reviewing historical video footage for purpose of gathering evidence relevant to a specific criminal investigation. And number three, requesting, obtaining, and reviewing historical video footage for purposes of gathering evidence relevant to an internal investigation regarding officer misconduct. Next slide, please. So prior to 19B um, and the approval of this particular STP, there really were no time limits related to temporary live monitoring when we had live monitoring operations. Officers were allowed to record live monitoring uh, that we did before 19B. Um, there was no standardized tracking or reporting, SID, HSU, Special Events Unit. They all managed their requests to non-city entities differently. And there was no standardized department-wide tracking or reporting relating to um, our um, temporary live monitoring activities outside of First Amendment um, activity investigations. So with this approved STP, there is a limit on monitoring to a max of 24 hours. We'd like to create some sort of in, internal uh, provision that makes it clear that people cannot go back for a second 24-hour monitoring, so limit that very clearly through our internal process. Uh, we're prohibited again from recording live monitoring. We have standardized tracking. Now a department-wide quarterly reporting requirement, chain of command and captain rank approval requirement for before we can even make the request to the non-city entity. Also updating our SFPD form 468 to extend to victims and witnesses so that they can um, include and confirm in writing that they're providing us with historical footage. And then there's also an annual report requirement set by COIT. So COIT will be sending us a template at that time when it comes time to do an annual report. So you will be CC'd as the commission, you'll be CC'd on that annual report. It typically goes to the board, but you will also receive it. Next slide, please. All right, so the quarterly report provision in the STP. Uh, the first one will be due 60 days after the first full quarter after the ordinance adoption. So uh, that's January, February, March of 2023. Uh, 60 days after will be due June 1st, so you'll see your first quarterly report. This reports the number of live monitoring operations, 
the operational costs of the department. So how much time we've spent live monitoring the captain rank approvals, the justifications for the captain rank approvals, uh, whether the non-city entity approved or denied, the disposition of the cases associated with live monitoring, and uh, also a new addition from the uh, board was the census tract crime stats. So the quarterly report will have the month prior and the month after a temporary live monitoring operation tied to census tracts. So census tracts, there's about 244 unique census tracts in San Francisco, and these cover about four to six block radius. Um, and each track has a number. So this map that you're seeing here, each of those little red numbers are numbers that are the assigned census tract. Um, and that has the race and ethnicity in that tract, the gender, median age, median household income, uh, the percentage of persons below poverty line, the educational attainment of residents, languages spoken at home. So this data will really inform kind of where we're doing our temporary live monitorings and the impacts that it has on the communities in, in those areas. Uh, we'll really be able to drill down with the census tract information. Next slide, please. So these are, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are a few of the publications that have informed uh, the policy development and the policy discussions that we had. Uh, there's an older report, a 2007 report um, from Homeland Security uh, regarding best practices in CCTV. Next. There's uh, policy considerations for the use of video and public safety. Again, Homeland Security. Next. Uh, this is a report from the COPS office, so that's the Community Oriented Policing Services with USDOJ, put out an, um, a report about using public surveillance systems. Next, the Constitution uh, Project and their guidelines for public video surveillance. Next, uh, the, this is the, um, can't really read it, but it's the California Research Bureau also put out a report about public video surveillance is an effective crime prevention tool. Next. This again, um, this one is USD School of uh, Policy Planning and Development report. Next. The Citrus report is actually an audit of um, SF Admin Code 19, which is the Community Safety Program uh, camera program. This was um, a program from several years ago where the city actually paid to put cameras and fix posts up in the city, um, throughout the city, it's about 70 cameras. Um, and this was co-owned by DEM, the mayor's office, uh, SFPD, the interagency project that put up cameras. And so this is the audit of what worked and what didn't work with that particular program. Um, and next, uh, disparate impact of surveillance. And again, this is not an exhaustive list of the um, publications that we read, but they all had an impact on developing the policy. Next slide, please. So the overlapping themes in the policies that I mentioned uh, relating to surveillance and public policy are the factors that do actually contribute to disparate surveillance and racial disparities with surveillance tools uh, and their usage by law enforcement. And so these are the factors that kind of came up in all of those publications that a department should keep their eye on um, when dealing with any surveillance tool, but specifically with video surveillance. So camera placement, 
that's a that's a big factor, right? Where are the cameras placed? Why are we placing them in those specific areas? In this case, because we're dealing with private entities, we're dealing with private companies and individuals, we have no control over camera placement, but we did add prohibitions that we would not be using footage or ask particularly go out and seek cameras where people have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, another factor are public funds, right? You're using general fund monies, so you have to really justify the use and be very, very careful about camera placement. In this case, there are no public funding that's related to the cameras as these are owned by private entities and individuals. Another factor that comes up with causing and exaggerating um, the, the racial disparities when it comes to surveillance are facial recognition, AI technology, any technology that automatically identifies individual typically will misidentify subjects. Um, we have a facial recognition ban in our policy and also um, wrote in a biometric software prohibition. Also another factor that does add to racial disparities are officer misuse of systems. Um, we particularly put up guardrails to um, minimize and mitigate officer misuse. They have to go through chain of command. They have to approve their request before they can even go to the non-city entity um, or individual for temporary live monitoring. Also, another factor is no sanctions for misuse. We've written in sanctions to the STP. Um, there's also another factor, lack of accountability. We had a very long public policy um, process, development process, took a lot of public comment, um, factored in the public comment. We also have quarterly reports that are now required per the STP and the ordinance. That'll really allow us as a department to see the data and allow members of the public to see the data to actually understand when we are deploying these uh, temporary live monitoring operations. Um, and also uh, just consistent consideration of equal protection under the law. Our SIR and civil liberties impact sessions and STP prohibitions can't say right now that it guarantees it, but we're certainly factoring it in. We will know with the data collection and data reporting, that's really where we're gonna get our answers on whether this is a hypothesis uh, or if these are real concerns that we need to force correct for. Next slide, please. Again, as I mentioned, uh, lots of public hearings, lots of public comment. These are a few of the public comments that we heard uh, over and over and just wanted to highlight what the comments were and what our responses were, um, either factored into the policy itself um, or into the presentations. So some, some of the concerns, right, where the cameras do not deter crime. Um, our focus really is on the deployment needs of our staff to make sure that they can get out to places where they'll need to go with large events and also with criminal investigations, gathering investigation materials and evidence for investigations. Central location to monitor cameras, that's a big concern. We have no central location that will be monitoring cameras. We don't have the legal or technical infrastructure to tap into anyone's cameras. All of these requests will be incident-based uh, and We'll have forms where people can sign it and show their consent. Um, also a concern that we should not use consent. Uh, we should only go by a warrant, but consent and exigencies are uh, recognized warrant exceptions. And we really wanna ensure that victims and witnesses can provide us with evidence that they see fit, they maybe have gathered um, through their own systems. 
There was concerns about the post-rural world tracking reproductive care. We have a clear prohibition on, and here it says page two, and this is a correction, in the STP it's actually on page three in our list of prohibitions that we will not be tracking anyone seeking reproductive care in California or any interstate travel coming to California to seek reproductive care. Um, impact on SFPD DGOs. So the SFPD STPs, this ordinance is a, it's a city law, it's an admin code. It is informed by the DGOs, um, but it doesn't change the DGOs. We made it clear to refer to the DGOs. If we were to take any of the content from the DGOs and put them in the STP, that would then become an admin code, which would make it very challenging for the commission to then amend any of that language. So we made sure just to refer to the DGOs um, our department has to comply with city laws and we have to comply with DGOs. And then success measures. Um, required quarterly reports will track uh, and review data and allow the department to make data informed course correction. But really the success of this um, is we had to comply with 19B. So we're required just like every single city department that has anything in their inventory to go one by one and go through this process and have an ordinance approved. So that's the kind of big picture success measure of, of this particular STP is that it is approved, but we really have to prove ourselves for 15 months um, to make sure that we're doing this in the right way. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, so next steps. This is our last slide. Um, policy ordinance enactment. It was actually signed by the mayor. So the enactment is when the mayor signs it. She signed it on October 6th. And the effective date is 30 days after that. So uh, we're looking at November 5th. This, this ordinance becomes effective. Our steps internally, we have to disseminate the new live monitoring request form to members. So this is the way officers will get their chain of command and captain rank approval. And then it's also the way they will get their non-city entity approval. Uh, this also tracks the staff time, it tracks the approvals, the length of monitoring time, and the results of the monitoring operations. We need to disseminate our updated SFPD Form 468. We're including a section for witnesses and victims to sign off on their consent for providing footage, uh, historical footage to us. And also training, we have to train uh, our staff because this is all new, We're, it's standardized across the board, everyone has to do it the same way. And our data team is also building a report that will overlay the census tract uh, information onto our current incident report methodology because we don't, we don't report crime by our census tract. So we have to make sure that now we can as the ordinance requires. So really we're implementing and training. We have a quarterly review, we have an annual review, and then we have a 15 month sunset provision that we have to deal with. Um, next slide, please. Um, before we take questions, I do wanna give you a heads up that our ALPR 19B policy and our shot spotter ALPR, um, excuse me, our shot spotter 19B policy annual reports are due in November. So COIT has sent out the instructions for that. Uh, you all will receive a CC on that, goes to the Board of Supervisors, but you will receive in early November. So I don't want you to be surprised that you will also receive the annual report for those two approved policies. Other than that, uh, I think the Chief and I will take any questions you may have. Yeah, I think there's gonna be a lot. Uh, uh, Commissioner Benedicto, I'm gonna start with you. <laughs> 
Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Steves and Chief Scott. I have a number of questions. Uh, first, I know you mentioned that the effective date will be uh, November 5th, uh, 2022. So that's 30 days after the mayor's sign uh, signing it. Is that correct? So th that would put the 15-month sunset date on Friday, January 5th, 2024. Is that your understanding? I don't have the exact effective date, but it's 15 months from November 5th. So yes. Okay, so I have that as Friday, January 5th, 2024. So that might be helpful for members of the public to know. And then another point, um, you mentioned with the sunset date that after 15 months, the, the, the city attorney can choose to sunset it. As I understand and read it, the, the sunsetting is mandatory, not discretionary, right? So at 15 months, it will end unless amended or extended. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Um, I think that was just a, a little bit of a, a mistake then in the presentation. Um, and then... So the first quarterly report uh, will be uh, 60 days after that quarter, so we can expect that June 1st, 2023? Yes. Perfect. And then I know that you know quarterly reporting is important, but I think we've seen on this commission there's a real appetite for learning about things in real time. So I think once this is up and running, I would like uh, to ask Chief that you include some of that information in, in, in your general Chief's report to us as you become aware of that information, particularly on the live monitoring piece, because that's... The, the the newest and it was the most controversial controversial piece yes uh can do that i will do that thank you thank you um i know that you had uh shown uh the the covers of eight reports that informed the department um i don't believe those were in the commissioner's packets if you would please uh submit those eight reports so we can both look at them and also put them on the commission website for the public to see what informed sfpd's uh development of this policy certainly I didn't see a report in there from the Center for Policing Equity. I know sometimes the department asks CPE to weigh in. Was, that, was there a request made for CPE to weigh in? Is there a, a letter of them assessing uh, the STP or any, or any of the, the materials? Chief? No, no, sorry, I was on mute. Uh, no, we did not ask the CPE for a report on this. However, we are engaging in a ComStat for Justice initiative with CPE and um, I believe that it will be very, very easy and possible once we get going on that. We're framing that out right now, but it is designed to really examine these types of issues. And I think it will be very much possible. And I'm just, I have not discussed this with CPA, but I'm just saying based on what I know comes that the intention of comes that for justice, I think it will be possible to incorporate this into that process. Okay, that would be, I, I think, very helpful. I think CPE has been such a good partner, and I know on 9.01 provided helpful um, analysis and then has done in priority, Joe, so I think their view would be appreciated. Um, I wanted to, you mentioned, um, Steve, that the, there's not, the, they're not permitted to record during uh, the temporary live monitoring, the scenario one of the three scenarios, but this is something I think we, we talked about the last time you presented too. It is the case that if an officer uh, with approval is viewing live monitoring on Tuesday from one to two at this one site and they see something interesting, while they can't record under that section of the policy, nothing prevents them from under the second section seeking out archival footage of that location at that time, correct? Correct. So the lack of recording, it doesn't mean that you don't have access to an archive version of that, just that you couldn't record while you're viewing it. You could still effectively get a recording of that same camera 
after the fact under Section 2, right? Correct. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that was clear. Um, I also, I uh, you know, I, I think we've expressed our view on this in letters. So not some of the questions so much as an observation. I appreciate that there is there there are restrictions about reproductive care, interstate travel, because that was something that President Elias and I raised to our letter in our letter to the board. Um, I think our, our concern remains because I think there's real risk of inadvertent capture of important, you know, if you're recording uh, a commotion that takes place in the field of view of a camera, you, you could end up with inadvertent capture of, of, of the sensitive information. But I do appreciate that that's been added. I just, I, I think, uh, continue to think there are, are problems there. Um, all right. I know that uh, Ms. Steves, the chief, you mentioned that there will be a policy developed. Um, what form will that take? What, what's actually going to be given to officers to, and I, I know there'll be a new form. I think you said the, the 468 form, but what is it going to be the, the form of a chief's bulletin or what is that going to look like in terms of what officers are going to get when to understand how to implement this new uh, ordinance? Sure. So, oh, I can let chief fill that question. Yeah. So once the, the forms are in process, I, I, uh, I've seen at least the, where we are right now. But once we get everything completed via notice is uh, the way we introduce those types of forms and protocols is via a department notice. So on presumably between now and November 5th, there'll be a department notice uh, and the forms. So on November, the morning of November 5th, officers are able to start requesting live monitoring under this ordinance or is, uh, are they gonna be required to complete the training that Ms. Steve's mentioned before they can make that request? Yeah, they'll, we'll, we'll have to complete the training and have the forms. I mean, it would not be, um, in my opinion, a wise decision uh, to do anything before we have the training and we have the forms so we can do this right. Because we have to, going back to the tracking, if we don't have the forms and all that, it makes it very difficult to track the things that we're required to track. Is there a, um, so there'll be the forms, the training, will officers not be, an individual officer, will they be not be permitted to make a request for monitoring until they've completed whatever the requisite training is? Correct. We we will complete the training, do the forms. So when we do engage in this process, we're ready to go. I mean, we don't want to do this half 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 cocked or willy nilly. That makes sense. How long do you expect? I mean, I know we we've seen this in DGOs where it can take, you know, six nine months a year, depending on the size of the DGO to train. I, mean, I think when we first revised five point oh one in twenty sixteen, it took two years to get the entire department. Trained. Is there an expectation of how long it will take to to get officers trained on on whatever this the, the new procedures will be? Um, if we train the, the entire department, it, it really depends on how we roll it out. If we roll it out with a uh, an extensive you know all day type of training, yeah, it's going to take take a while. But the thought process is for those individuals most likely to use it. Some of the the stations. For instance, our, our retail theft investigators, um, you know, we have people, you know, snatch and grab type of retail thefts, and some of them are um, frequent. So those types of units would definitely receive the training first. Uh, stations that are impacted by these types of applications of, of, of activity would be uh, trained first, but it's going to, it, it will take time to train the entire department it's as far as a block of training. But we can push out a notice, but we can push out and we will in terms of the protocols, but actually 
hands-on training takes longer. That makes sense. And I, I think we're, we're all in agreement that we want, we want to make sure we're not going off, uh, you know, without it fully formed. Would you, ex you know, you're, would you estimate then that when this is, so, you know, legal goes into effect November 6th, when would you estimate that you first have units starting to take advantage of these new procedures, including live monitoring? Well, the form is pretty much near completion. And I'll ask Aja to, she just briefed me on this the other day. Aja, in terms of the forms and the, all the things that you're working on with members of the department, what's the estimation? Sure, the I do, ready. I just also want to piggyback on uh, your last answer too. With the impacted units, because in the STP and in the ordinance, the special events unit, uh, HSU, SID, um, there are certain units that are named that um, can do temporary live monitoring requests for significant events. Those were kind of also going to be included in the first batches of training. Uh, but the form itself uh, is near completion. We're just getting it vetted. Um, and we're hoping to make it so self-explanatory that the training isn't super challenging. It's with check boxes, with an approved denied, here's the reason. So we're trying to make it as simple as possible for rollout. And with the batches of the units, it could be rolled out, um, you know, by second week of November, third week of November, we need to test it also. We still need to beta test. We wanna get feedback from officers to see how easy it is to use. So the idea is hopefully the, we'll be able to change the form out and get it completely uh, ironed out by the end of November. So you wouldn't expect that there would be, uh, even among those units you've identified as in that first wave, you wouldn't expect that there'd be active use of this on November 5th necessarily. Steve's. I don't. I don't believe that our training will be rolled out by November 5th. Okay, but you would expect by the end of the month or early December, uh, some units will be uh, using the this policy. That is the hope, and, it, and specifically also to give us feedback to make that form, that live request form, uh, better and more user-friendly as well. So, yes. Okay. Um, I believe those are all of my questions. I look forward to seeing uh, those reports, and uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Thank you, Commissioner Benedicto. Commissioner Walker, are you in the queue, or is that from prior, from the last item? Yes, I'm in the queue. I just had a, okay. a few questions. One of them was the question about the um, the recording, which is prohibited of the live surveillance, but then they can actually request for the other channels of getting it from the owner of the camera, I guess. You get the record that they're making? Correct. And that okay. was to uh, just address the issue of stockpiling. There was a yes. concern that we were stockpiling yeah. hours and hours of footage. And so right. the request when we go back would be about the incident that we reviewed. I see. It wouldn't that, be well, that, yeah. the 24 hours. It would be, we saw an incident between this time and this time, and we want the footage related. Right. And it would be the same process that we use for requesting it currently um, with due cause, all that. Correct. For a subpoena. Okay. Um, the other question is, you mentioned sanctions. Is that going to go through the same process they do with um, discipline cases now? Is that it would just be yes. determined what the penalty is? Correct. Or is there discussion going on about that? No, what we've written in the STP is, is mirrors the 
city departments, this actual okay. department's discipline uh, process. And then um, after, of course, all of the training and, you know, the, um, the notice of this. So if, well, the, it's, it's spelled out here. There's a, a process that the, the officer has to go through to get approval above a certain rank. And then it goes through that process to be approved. Um, okay. Well, it, it would be great to see the form if we can, when you have it, I think that's going to be an interesting bit of information we're getting. So, um, I would like to have that shared with us as soon as we can get that. Um, I think that's it. I think, you know, it's, it's good that we're collecting data and looking at it frequently, because I think all of these things that we do, um, people have concerns and the more we can uh, show data of what's occurring and that would be great. So thank you for the presentation. Thank you, Commissioner Walker. Vice President Carter Oberstone. Thank you, President Elias. Um, just a couple questions for me. First, I was curious, what was the community outreach? I'm sorry, you're breaking up a little bit. Sorry. Oh, I apologize. I just asked, what, what was the community outreach effort like for the development of this policy? Well, the development process is legislated through 19B. So the public hearings are managed by COIT uh, and the PSAB, uh, the Privacy Surveillance Advisory Board, uh, as well as COIT. So we took public um, comments through the legislative process. The mayor's office did the facilitate a few office did facilitate a few discussions with a coalition of uh, people. I think we've also um, did some presentations to the Bar Association. But because the 19B process is legislated, the approval and development process is legislated, we followed the 19B uh, process for the development. Right, I understand that the process is legislated, but I'm asking in terms of what the department proposed as its preferred course of action. You, you, you said you read a bunch of reports, for example. I'm asking whether, in terms of your internal development of what the department's preferred policy was, whether you solicited community input, and if so, what that looked like. Yes, I can answer that uh, as well. So this has been um, in... I don't even know the count of community meetings where uh, the topic is brought up in the meeting and uh, questions were answered regarding the policy. And some of this was along the way while it was all the processes that Ms. Steve just talked about was ongoing, but we answered the questions that we could. Also, um, there was um, at the request of the commission, some of the uh, the, the advocacy groups, including at least some members of the ACLU and others, the uh, EFF and others, we met with, um, along with uh, Super Supervisor Peskin and representatives from the mayor's office. And I think that was at least two meetings. Um, some of our um, other outreach, the community meetings that, that I've attended, and got in the questions about you know, what this is and what it can do. Um, I, I too many to actually too many to name. Um, this has been ongoing, and you saw the list of how long this has been ongoing. But uh, it definitely is. It was a topic of interest in many of the community community meetings, and 
question and answers as the policy was developed. Um, in addition to the commission's recommendation to meet with some of those groups that I just named. And that was the joint meeting that Ms. Steves talked about with representatives from the mayor's office and the uh, supervisor himself, Supervisor Peskin and his staff. All right, thank you. So it sounds like you had some private meetings with EFF and Supervisor Peskin and that this issue came up at pre-scheduled community meetings, but just to be clear, there were not any community meetings specifically dedicated to this topic, correct? Specifically dedicated, specifically no. dedicated no. You're correct. And why didn't you think it was necessary to have community meetings specifically dedicated to this topic, given that it's a pretty significant policy change and um you know as Ms. steves outlined in her report there's these significant concerns that will have or could have racial disparities why why didn't you think it was necessary to go out and have community town halls specifically dedicated to this surveillance policy well there's really let me, let me give some context to how this developed as well i mean the the whole 19 v process in terms of this has been ongoing for well over a year. Um, there was a time where the mayor was going to take this type of policy or policy similar to this to the voters on a ballot measure. And then Supervisor Peskin also had his own legislation. So this was not necessarily our legislation at the beginning. Um, that was worked out and the supervisor and the mayor decided to work together on this 19B surveillance or, uh, ordinance, and that pulled us into this equation. This, as Aja just pointed out, is a really a board-driven process. I mean, it's our, our, the policy that we helped develop, but this was really the supervisor, the mayor's office, and the department working together. So we did not necessarily drive this process. Mm -hmm. Okay. And <clears throat> why is it then, so, so it sounds like the reason that you didn't think we need to do this is there were other actors also involved in policy development. So maybe it was their job to do the community outreach if it was going to happen. Well, now, I, let, me, let me be very clear, Commissioner. The community engagement definitely happened. Um, right, right. I just want to be, I, I appreciate that it came up at meetings. I, I'm not surprised. It's a very important policy, which is why it would come up at meetings. I'm asking specifically now about having, going out to where people live and having meetings after, you know, people get off of work. So they, if they're interested, they can show up and express their views. And I'm just, so I just want to be clear now. It's just, you're saying that didn't, the department didn't take the lead on that because other folks were also driving the policy and it was on them to do it. Well, no, the, well, no. <laughs> we're taking out, taking out. There was community engagement. We did go out to the community. We clear on that, but we did not have a town hall. That is correct. Okay, so, but you didn't have any community engagement specifically for this. It's just that this topic came up at, at meetings that were scheduled to talk about any number of things. That's correct, right? That's what you said. No, potentially infused into community meetings. So the public had a chance to both understand what was happening and to ask questions. 
and give the department as much as we can answer the question an opportunity to answer the questions. This, this was, I mean, I, I just wanna make clear that this wasn't some afterthought type of thing. We, this was a consistent topic at our community meeting. Right. Chief, if I, can just, I just want to make sure that the issue of community outreach, if people are going to raise it, you know, I think it's I think it's great. It's important in all policy development, but we need to be really consistent in the way we raise it. And so when for some policies, we have a month long community outreach process with half a dozen or a dozen meetings dedicated specifically to the policy topic and folks say that that's not sufficient. That's fine. Uh, that's totally reasonable. It's welcome, but I think we need to start being consistent. So this is something I'm going to ask. Can I clarify? Ask about going forward. This, so this is this is an ordinance development. Um, please, please. The COIT schedules these meetings. So COIT is the lead on developing and managing the meetings. Just to piggyback on what Chief was saying, it's not our scheduled meetings. This PSAB isn't beholden to our schedule. Coit themselves are not beholden to our schedule. So they're going to schedule the approval path as PSAB, Coit, board. And their schedule is what we are beholden to. So whether we want to have community meetings for a month, PSAB, Coit, and the board are still on a schedule that we are required to adhere to. Um, so, and it is again yes. a development of an ordinance. So, the public process under 19B to gather public feedback is through All those the PSAB, COIT, and the rule. On top of the CPABs and these other meetings that we have where we can gather the information, but the schedule isn't ours necessarily to manage. Right. So, I understand there's an intricate regulatory and legislative process to enact this as policy having the force of law, but with respect, that's a completely separate issue than SFPD having community meetings when formulating its own internal position as to what the policy would be. But I think we can move on now. We've exhausted this one, I think. Um, I have a painfully basic question, um, and I, this might be more for the chief, but would invite me. Steve's to, to also answer um, whoever whoever wants to take it, which is, can you just, this question has been asked various ways in the past, but I, I just want to ask it because I, I still haven't gotten a handle on it, which is, can you just articulate the use case for this policy? Specifically, you know, what is a kind of common factual scenario where having access to live camera footage for four hours will stop or prevent a crime that might otherwise well, I can give you, um, you broke up a little bit, but I think I heard your question. I can give you. Chief, can you, I'm sorry, Chief, can you speak up a little bit? Because I think you're far away from the microphone. Sorry. Yeah, it may, it may be me because I, um, the commissioner is breaking up on my end as well. Can you hear me better now? Yeah, a little. So I, I. I think the I believe the question was to give a, a an example of a case in which live use would come into play, and I can give a real life example that actually that I've been involved in um, series of of gang related shootings where information was learned about a 
retaliatory shooting that was supposed to happen in an area where there happened to be cameras that the police department had access to. This was not in San Francisco, this part came to San Francisco. Um, officers then monitored that camera based on the vehicle description that they had learned through information they, that they had obtained. And actually that vehicle came into that location um, with the intention to do a shooting. And those people were arrested, uh, guns in hand, guns in car. And in that particular case, a shooting was prevented. So, I mean, these, these are, this is a real life example and, and there are others like that, but this is one that definitely I had personal knowledge of. So those would be some instances where that type of policy can come into play. Um, and again, the approval process, there has to be the information for the officer who is seeking live monitoring to get approval by a captain. But that situation is not uncommon, not unheard of, and, and definitely that's something that, I, that I've experienced during my law enforcement career. Okay, I think that Vice President Carter Overstone, you're, I don't know if you're freezing or having. I think, I think he said he's having some computer issues. Okay. Uh, I'm going to move on and then allow him to resolve those. Uh, I had a couple questions, so I'm going to ask my questions because I don't see anyone else in the chat. Um, you talked about census tracking, um, and I, I want to know the, the census tracked crime stats. So I'm assuming that that is... Well, I guess my question is this, is that what is the tracking mechanism for tracking and recording the racial demographic of those that are being uh, surveilled? And how do you plan on tracking this? Because I know you mentioned the census tracked crime stats, but I maybe you can explain it more because I assume that means that once the person is arrested, then you will take that demographic data and then provide that. But what about instances where they, you know, um, the, during live monitoring or they're surveilling, how are you going to track the demographic, the racial demographic in those situations? Sure. Uh, in those situations, we'll have to use arrest data um, to give you any demographics of the, the people that we are arresting. Um, the census tract was put in by the Board of Supervisors to essentially show what the demographics are of the neighborhoods where surveillance operations are happening, because that too is important information. Um, so it'll just get a, give us a drill down. But we have on the live monitoring request form, we've added a um, post monitoring report and in the post-monitoring report, it includes information about the case disposition, whether we brought cases against uh, anyone that was being monitored, and then what the disposition of that case is. So it'll be available in the post-monitoring report. Well, why can't you capture? Why can't you capture that data when the officer is applying to the captain or his superior for the actual monitoring? Why, because it seems that if it's post, that doesn't really give us a true accurate depiction of the racial demographic that's actually being affected by this policy. 
the post would actually capture whether there was active, like arrest, if there was an arrest or actionable, uh, any action taken by the police department. And that's what would be tracking. But if there was no arrest, then how would that be tracked? Meaning if they, if they, they request a superior officer to monitor and surveil, but then it leads to no arrest. I mean, the, my assumption is there's the suspicion in the officer's mind as to who they're targeting or what they want to see. So if that's the case and they have to seek their superior's sign-off, why can't you track that data during that process rather than after the fact? So would, I'm sorry, just to clarify the request. So would you suggest that we would put in the credible intelligence that we have to list in order to get the um, captain approval that we would put the assumptions of the, the racial, racial yeah racial demographic suspects just, yeah just like they do for the RIPA reporting and other the ninety six A reporting why why can't that also be a part of it beforehand because again if it's post it's not giving you an accurate description because I assume that not every single application is going to result in an arrest and so you're missing that whole I think chunk of data. And it's not giving you an accurate an accurate picture. Uh, yeah, I I don't. Well, I understand your question. I don't know that we would have that information on every occasion. In terms of why not? Because you're going to have that. I mean, in order to apply for it, or in order to get the captain to sign off on this, you would need to list out certain characteristics as to what would be the basis for applying for this and using this monitoring. So why why can't that be included? We don't always have that information in terms of uh, if we're talking about the potential or the, the believed uh, race or ethnicity of the person of interest to be. Well, I think you can you can put it in there and allow the officer to give his best guess because again you're missing a huge area of data and how it's going to affect certain communities because. If the officer has to describe and again list out certain characteristics that give him a basis, her him or her a basis in order to apply for this type of monitoring, then that would that having a box on the form that you're talking about doesn't seem very complicated or doesn't seem very burdensome for an officer to check which box applies. Yeah. And he can even put in unsure, other, or you know, whatever. You can word it however, but you're not capturing how this is going to affect certain communities. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not saying it's complicated. I'm just, as far as the tracking of it, and um, definitely open. I think it probably merits further discussion about how that data will be used. I think I understand the point you're making. I, I'm concerned that this is my concern, and maybe, like, let me just get to it. I'm concerned that there that this type of policy or monitoring is going to happen, and it's going to happen and have a negative impact on communities of color. But we don't know that or we can't track what the what that is by only relying on post date like post arrest data, right? And so the uh, you're saying that your concern is that officers would have to make assumptions as to the racial demographic of the person they want to use this technology on. Well, they have to make that assumption on a RIPA when they report RIPA demographic data as well. So it's not inconsistent with what they already have to do when they make a stop. So I just think that it, you know, we can't rely on post-arrest data. 
that's not going to give us a picture of the entire demographic that is that this type of technology is being used on because they may not end up in arrests so how would we know we wouldn't and, oh, and according yeah, to you if it's a form right. that is correct it may not end up in arrest so i think i'm processing what you're saying what you're saying is have the information where we can track as much as we can do this the data going into the consideration right yeah, yeah. I think that 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 can be added to the form. Yes, and, and I think we would have to flush out exactly what we're tracking and figure that out. But that can be definitely added to the form. Okay, and also too, I really would like to see the forms and the training that you're developing on this and have that presented because I thought that's what we were going to get today. Um, I, I really want to see something more concrete and tangible in terms of what, you know, the department bulletin or how you plan on rolling this out, what specifically you're telling officers and how you're training them. I think that's really helpful for the commissioners and for the public to know um, very specifically what exactly you plan on doing logistically and procedurally in terms of rolling this, this uh, legislation out. We, um, the other... I was just going to add... So can we get it agendized before we roll it out? Is that? Uh, yes. Okay. Just, I need it again. I need it by Friday morning so that I can post it Friday by noon and it'll, it'll get out. And also too, if you can share that information, I think with DPA or have them uh, in the room, because again, that is another agency that's going to, that has the power to bring discipline charges against officers. And, you know, they, I think need to be in the room to figure out how you're going to, implement this policy so that they can figure out how that, you know, how to do their jobs. And that transitions me to my other question, which is with respect to guardrails. Um, uh, and in terms of what specific guardrails are there? I know that they need, there's a chain of command and they need to seek captain approval, but in terms of sort of safeguards and guardrails, are you going to, if, if an officer violates the policy and you are going to hold, are you, I assume you would, he would be subject to discipline, but what about the captain or the superior who has to sign off on this? Are you also going to be holding them accountable? Uh, yes. If there's misconduct. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And then what, what specific guardrails are, are there? Cause I, I think you mentioned some like, Oh, there's a chain of command and there's discipline, but I'm not sure what specifically the guardrails are. Like, how do we ensure or, or assure people that, you know, they're some, that this policy isn't going to be abused? Um, yeah, so there, there is, uh, the, the plans are definitely to have an oversight policy. I mean, this is going to be very, very much, it's already very much scrutinized, but the oversight, the tracking, all the reporting that we have to do uh, those forms that we mentioned will have to be reviewed and those will have to be audited to make sure that they have been approved properly. Um, there's just a conversation we just had to really pay attention to the disparity impacts and, and the impacts on that end. So just like with any policy, I mean, the expectation of all departments per 2.01, DGO 2.01, is to follow all policies and written directives. So breaches of that are subject to discipline. Once we put the policy and the protocols in place, we have to follow them. Okay. 
Those were my two uh, questions that I had. Uh, I'm going to, and then you're going to get us the forms and then show us what training the officers are going to receive on this and we'll get that agendized. So I'm going to, I think Commissioner Yanez, I think you're in the queue and then Vice President uh, Carter Oberstein. Thank you, President Elias. Uh, Chief, uh, just a couple of clarifying questions. Um, it appears from the presentation that um, we will be rolling this out and utilizing the same form for requesting live monitoring and review of historical data, correct? No, we'll be using no. different forms. So two so, different forms. Yes. Okay. Uh, with regards to uh, the form itself, um, it, and, and I'm sure, or I hope that this is going to be taken into account uh, in the training elements of it, when the request uh, after it has been authorized, when this uh, authorized request is being implemented, so an officer goes out to a, you know, non-city entity, let it be a business or a private residence, um, and they request access to the live feed or to historical data, um, what type of, um, and I think I asked this the, the last time you presented, what, what is the expectation of the officer to convey to the person that is being, that is receiving the request for either the live feed or for the historical data, um, to opt out or to refuse to provide that if in fact they do not feel comfortable providing that? Sure, so we've added um, a line in both 468, the form that's for the victims and witnesses surveillance and for the live monitoring. Uh, there's an actual line in that form that makes it clear that they are consenting um, without coercion or force. It's in our current 468 form, um, but we've added it to the live monitoring form as well. So they sign off uh, their approval that they're approving, but they have the, it's, they, they have the right to refuse the request. So we're making that clear in both live monitoring and the historical request form. And so they, the officer checks the box or they, the person receiving the request is expected to either sign off on the request uh, in the consent area of that form? Correct, the person who's receiving the request. So the non-city entity or the individual. Got it, that's great. Um, and with regards to uh, language access, will this uh, form be offered in the various language that we um, currently have translation services for? Yes, so we are required as a city agency to translate all of our documents into the five primary languages. And I believe with SFPD, we've expanded the core languages to, to more. I want to say 10, but I, I don't want to misspeak, but we are, yes, we're required to translate all of our public facing forms um, so that they are, I believe, Spanish, Vietnamese, Tagalog, um, and I'm sorry, it's escaping me, but we are required to. Antonese is one of them. Thank you. Thank you for including that. And, and I'm going to encourage uh, that we also add one more checkbox to that form the way that uh, President Elias was recommending, uh, because the more we could capture, you know, the communities that are being impacted, 
and cross-reference that, you know, with the impact or outcome of these investigations, I think will uh, guide us in, in developing a more, a, a robust policy, right? Um, the last question that I had just, I mean, and, and I'm sure this was taken to, into account because this question is one of the more, um, I think, pressing ones is uh, the language around significant events, you know, is, is somewhat vague, it's just a significant event, right? Um, I think that there had been recommendations to include maybe a number other departments in different, uh, you know, jurisdictions have, you know, anything over maybe 10,000 people. Um, what, what kind of training or what is the expectation uh, when a request comes in and there is a First Amendment activity that is you know, pretty well detailed. The, the, the First Amendment DGO has a lot of language to make sure that we are not uh, violating First Amendment act, uh, activities or people's rights in those areas. Um, what is the training expectation or the authorization expectation in this case? So the DGO already exists for First Amendment activities. It's pretty clearly defined that if there's any criminal investigation that relates to First Amendment activities, uh, members have to get SID approval before they can even use electronic tools. So we still are beholden to all of our DGOs. And that DGO is set in stone and it is also being updated, correct? So um, we refer that we refer to that DGO in the STP to make it clear that if there are any um, investigations relating to First Amendment activities, we have to follow that DGO. Uh, but separately, in the live monitoring request form, we are adding a checkbox specifically to make it clear that if this is a First Amendment activity um, investigation, it requires the SID approval per DGO A10. Um, so we're making sure, A, in the STP, we, we make sure that everyone's still complying with that DGO, but also in the new form, we're making a checkbox to make it clear that we're still beholden to that DGO with the First Amendment activities and SID approval. Great. Thank you for that. And uh, I agree with uh, President Elias and Director Henderson that the sooner we can see those forms, the, the better it will be for us to digest and to generate uh, more recommendations or questions. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yanez. Uh, Vice President uh, Carter Overstone, and then I have Commissioner Byrne and then Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, President Elias. Just one other question for me, and this is um, perhaps a little bit off topic, so um, the answer is not at the ready. Happy that we can just discuss it another time or talk about it offline. But um, so, you know, there are a number of private companies that have smart doorbells with cameras that are linked to the cloud. You know, Amazon has one that's very popular, and a lot of these companies have you know, market directly to law enforcement agencies um, and allow private customers to share, you know, their footage with police departments. Um, and I'm just wondering, do we participate in these? Um, sorry? Do, do, we, do we participate in these services um, where we partner with, say, Amazon Ring Camera and um, access uh, private footage from their customers' cameras? We do no. not. Um, also, in our impact report, we, we show other um, jurisdictions what they do, and it says that we do not. And also on the first page of the STP, it says that um, 
we will not have a ring neighbors or similar part, uh, agreements. So basically we're saying even if we were to, uh, let's say Ring or Amazon or any of these companies were to come and engage with us through this STP and ordinance, we're not allowed to actually uh, enter into an agreement with them because of this STP and ordinance. That's interesting. And and why didn't the department want to uh, want to do that? There was, oh, sorry, Chief. Yeah, um, balance, Commissioner. I mean, this is a very important topic and um, if the home, if an individual homeowner wants to provide, you know, evidence of a crime or, or or that type of thing, that's what this is designed to do. We we understand the balance, we understand the concerns. We did not even entertain or pursue that. Okay, interesting. Thank you for that. That's everything for me, Commissioner Byrne. Thank you, Madam President. Um, <clears throat> Chief, uh, are you aware? Other jurisdictions in the San Francisco Bay Area have uh, surveillance technology policies. Is that correct? There are there are other jurisdictions with policies. Yes. And are you familiar with any of them? Um, not verbatim, but I do know they exist. Commission. It, so, depending on your knowledge, compared to other jurisdictions in in the San Francisco Bay Area. San Francisco's policy uh, more liberal, or is it stricter, and are there more safeguards with it? I believe it's more restrictive than some departments. Uh, probably by by far more restrictive. I think I, I believe the safeguards are uh, also have more safeguards in it. Okay, thank you. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, President Elias. Uh, one quick follow-up, Chief. I know we, there was some discussion of uh, sanctions. Um, so once the, the policy and the bulletin and the notice go out, will violating that notice be added to the discipline recommendation matrix? So there's a, so it's clear to officers what the recommended discipline will be for violations of this policy? Uh, the, well, the discipline recommendation, I mean, I'm not saying that's not a, a, a good idea. That is not all encompassing. I mean, it's very broad in terms of the the, the recommendation matrix, and as well as the the, the latitude of uh, discipline, depending on mitigating and aggravating factors. I don't I don't know that it's necessary because I think it's covered broadly in there. But I'm not it. I think it it's almost impossible for everything that comes up in in our course of you know discipline reviews to put everything that might come up in there, but. I think it's covered, but I don't think it'll hurt if they add it, if that's your question. That makes sense. I, I think it's just important that we can, maybe when you come back, once the policy, uh, once you have those forms, that either you could point out like where you think it falls under the matrix so it's clear, and then also where, and if, if we can't really agree or find a clean place, then, then we can consider adding. Because I think it should be, you know, this is a new policy for a lot of officers, so they want to make sure that the potential discipline is very clear, um, and so the, the, offer, the, op, the officers are operating um, with with clarity on that. Thank you. Commissioner Yee. Got to turn on the mic. Hey, thank you, Madam uh, President. Uh, just have a question on the approval of the STP and limited monitoring for a maximum of 24 hours. 
is that for one request or per request? Is that correct? That's for one request. And again, in our internal documents, we'd like to make it clear that it, if there's ever going to be a second request, it would have to be based on a really extreme exigency or an exigent circumstance. We do not want officers to make requests for multiple 24 hour um, monitoring um, opportunities. So we're going to try to make that more restrictive. Uh, yeah. And if, uh, say, for example, the private or the non-city entity camera, uh, if, if you look at the device and it's, I guess the dates are incorrect and you're searching on the wrong dates, uh, would that give the department to, I guess, reissue a second day, second 24 hour period? So you go in there, it's uh, November 5th, right? It says, uh, on there, November fifth, but it's actually November fourth on the on the clock. So I'm just I'm just saying that if you uh, have, I guess, devices, um, I guess, has an error in there, is that uh, noted? And how do you correct that? Where you have um, you know mis misstates on there that doesn't coincide with the application that you're searching on the device. So for the temporary live monitoring request, members have to on the form to their chain of command into the captain and then separately to the non-city entity say what date and how much time they're asking for. So in the request, if you're my non-city entity, I'd say I would like to uh, review this on October 18th from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. And we're live monitoring it. So it's not historical footage that's misdated. We're watching it. We're st it's streaming, so okay. um, that it has to line up with what we're a what we're asking for, and then when the non-city entity provides us with access. I, I understand it, but say you get into the device and you look on October eighteenth, and you look into the date, and the machine may not be actually, you know, sometimes the clock's turned off or or the dates are changed. Uh, I'm just curious if, if, if you know. There's something you maybe look at, uh, making sure that the date that you're looking for coincide with the device that is, you know, the dates are are the same. So you don't look at it, uh, I guess, in searching for that data or the collection of data, uh, if you may not see that data there. So I'm just bringing that up. If there's a correction that needs to be done, do you stop it right there that you notice that the uh, devices off a day and then have to reissue another form to correct it the search i don't know how likely that would be um but this is a good thing to make us aware of so we can ask i can talk to my video retrieval officers and talk to investigations and see how often that scenario has come up but because we're specifically asking for live streaming um oh, live. it would be it would just be live it's not searching for a collection of data. It's oh, you're not looking for the historical. You're doing live streaming. It would be live streaming. So we're asking, can I live stream from your system, essentially, from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m.? So that's not, um, I think, the chances of getting the wrong date on that 
built each portal is I mean it's handled different every non city entity has a different system so I can't say that it's standardized but typically they're giving you access to, to live monitoring um, but when we go back for historical footage it's for a specific time and date okay. so so you say October 8, uh, 18 from 1 to 5 the clock on on the device is uh, October 16 I, I mean you know you you know you, you may miss some data so uh, we'll, 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 uh, take a look at it again. Thank you, Madam President. Thank you. Um, quick question. And you may have covered this and I apologize if I missed it. You're going to also track the data from the stations, right? Like what station is requesting, um, the use of this monitoring and how often. So the census tracks don't line up neatly with the district stations, but we are drilling down to the district sector car, what district sector car is making the um, request if it's patrol, and then also what unit is making the request. So if it's investigations, it wouldn't be from a station. But because our obligation is census track data, not district station data, um, and again, there are district, there's census tracks that run through two different districts. Um, so we're trying to drill it down by the district sector patrol and then make it align with census track data. So that's kind of the report function that we're looking for to overlay. Okay, because I think it should coincide with how the 96A reports and the use of force and how they break it down to each, you know, station. And, but so we're, we can, we're doing an yeah. overlay map so you can see which census tracks are with which um, district stations. And that'll be part of the report. But again, some district, let's say we do a um, temporary live monitoring in district track 126.06, that might overlay with Northern um, and with Central, right? So it'll have, it won't neatly do the report the way we're familiar with. We have to do it the way the ordinance is asking for, but we are creating an overlay so that we can, um, so it can be familiar to us essentially. Okay, great, thank you. All right, can we go to public comment, please? At this time, the public is now welcome to make public comment regarding line item five. If you'd like to make public comment, please press star three now. Good evening, caller, you have two minutes. Caller, can you hear me? I will come back. Good evening, caller, you have two minutes. Yeah, what I want to say is that uh, we live in a digital world and um, we are getting a lot of uh, stalling on this issue at City Hall. Uh, statements have been made by Matt Dossie that uh, because he has some experience having worked for the department, uh, that we need to get a grip on the situation. I know something about this situation. Having worked for a federal agency, and so uh, we need to look into some of the the higher federal agencies to see how they do the reporting. Because uh, uh, the incident reports and the chain of command uh, can be done in various ways. 
but um, we have technology now that have uh, different type of fields that can be inputted so that we can make a needs assessment as soon as possible. And that's what I want to say. We are living in a digital world. Uh, to make uh, any of these discussions more meaningful, we need to get some um, orientation from the experts. Thank you very much. Thank you, caller. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Thank you. Uh, this is David Aronson, resident of District 1. Um, I'm happy to hear commissioners uh, Elias and Yanez call out the potential that this technology could be used to um, perpetuate the biased policing of black and brown communities in San Francisco uh, that we've seen with uh, arrests, stops, and uh, use of force. Um, I agree that every effort should be made to document racial demographics, and I strongly recommend that the police commission demands that per capita demographic reports along the lines of what is reported on stops, arrests, and use of force uh, is required as part of the reporting. Um, if there is no race-related data in the requests, uh, it's opaque to the public if uh, a, a community or a group of people is being over-surveilled, uh, especially if there are no arrests because there's nothing to report back on. So I strongly uh, encourage the Police Commission to continue to pursue that uh, reporting. Um, also, I wonder if there are any prohibitions around activities being recorded longer than 24 hours. Uh, it seems like if not, SFPD could certainly uh, just simply ask for a camera in an adjacent building to be used if available. Uh, that would effectively render the 24-hour time limit ineffective. Um, also wondering if there's prohibition or limitations on multiple cameras in a given area uh, that could be staggered. Uh, the request could be staggered hours apart, uh, which would also render the 24-hour limitation ineffective. Uh, curious about those questions. Thank you. Your caller. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hi, good evening. This is Julie Tron. I'm a resident of uh, District 8, longtime resident, and um, I'm calling on behalf of the Bar Association. And I appreciate that the police department and the Board of Supervisors have cleared the hurdle of the administrative code regulations for 19B, but that still has not made this live surveillance legal or constitutional. We still have many questions regarding violations of the First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, and 14th Amendment, and we have more work to do. The police department came to a criminal justice task force meeting of the Bar Association a couple of weeks ago and presented to us. We had a number of questions. Our position has been and continues to be, get a warrant. That is the only way to make live surveillance constitutional is to get a warrant. And we were told by the police department that they don't have the um, sufficient training among the officers to apply for a warrant. It is not unlike a Title III wiretap warrant, which can be secured in an expedited um, fashion. And we have offered some of our members who include former U.S. attorneys to help the department with this training. So this is just the first piece. 19B is just the first piece. The second piece is to make sure that we are not subjecting this city to lawsuits or subjecting the evidence gathered to suppression motions in criminal cases. And the only way to avoid that 
is to secure a warrant, which can be done. And we just, we just haven't had that conversation. And despite the offer to the police department, no one has reached out to us seeking that help. So I don't think we're there yet. I'm very concerned that we think just because we have passed muster with 19B, that somehow makes it legal. It doesn't. So I have, we have very grave concerns and we are. Thank you, caller. President Elias, that is the end of public comment. Thank you. Next item, please. Line item six, presentation of the Safe Streets for All quarterly report discussion. Should be Commander Walsh. Good evening, am I up? Yes, sir. Okay, thank you, Stacey. Uh, good evening, commissioners and uh, Chief Scott. Thank you uh, for having me tonight. Commander Peter Walsh, San Francisco Police Department, uh, Special Operations MTA. Uh, tonight, I'll be going over the Safe Streets for All campaign uh, in San Francisco. Um, the main component of Safe Streets uh, revolves around Vision Zero and uh, the several agencies that are uh, involved in it, which include, um, they each have distinct uh, parts in it, but it's a cooperative role with each other. Um, MTA, obviously, uh, Department of Public Health and SFPD. Stacy, if you could go to the next slide, please. Stacy, I think you have a different deck than I do. Um, is it just out of order or is it the wrong? It looks like it's a little bit out of order. So my deck on number two has the Vision Zero strategy. That's okay, Stacey, I'll, I'll just go off yours. I apologize if you wanna go back. Okay, so we'll start off. Uh, the Vision Zero Severe and Fatal High Injury Network. So this is compiled by both DPH and uh, MTA with the reports coming in through SFPD. Um, they are also getting some injury uh, locations by uh, reports that come directly through DPH, which is kind of one of the newer things. So if it wasn't actually documented, uh, for instance, if you have a solo bicycle uh, collision or we have tend to have scooter, uh, solo scooter uh, injuries, those are now uh, sometimes coming in through DPH, through the emer uh, emergency uh, reporting, uh, emergency room reporting them. So if you go ahead and take a look, you can see uh, the dates are from 1-1-2014 to 6-30-22. Um, and within that, uh, you'll see the uh, number of uh, intersections that have the highest amount of collisions. Now, um, one of the things about uh, collisions is they don't necessarily uh, mean the worst of fatality. Uh, or necessarily even um, something as uh, that would hospitalize you, but they're they're included there in those numbers. The map to the left, the darker the color, so that deep dark red, uh, are the higher impact areas. Within that, you'll see circles 
those are the total numbers, again, spanning everything from somebody being injured in a minor collision all the way up to a fatality. Those numbers, again, go from 1-1-2014 to 6-30-2022. Um, next slide, Stacey. So here, um, a couple things, uh, the traffic violations on focus on the five violations. So the overall traffic violations by uh, the districts are actually done by officers at the district level. Um, we actually got a question today wondering why, for instance, Richmond had more traffic enforcement. That is upon the captain of each district station. The captains go ahead and put together um, a plan every month through field operations, not through the traffic division. And they concentrate on the areas that are being complained about. Um, we will get into staffing a little bit later, uh, but one of the things that is happening uh, through is most stations used to have a specific traffic vehicle car. So that car would handle traffic enforcement, collisions, and uh, the like at the uh, centralized location of each district station. SOB and the traffic officers we refer to as solos, we come in more as a support unit. We do our own operations based on, depending on vision zero or collision areas, complaints, uh, but we generally come in on support uh, on those. So the goal for Focus on the Five is what we've been asked to do since 2015, 2016, is to have a percentage of overall sites that fall on the focus of the five, uh, focus of, on the five. And just as a reminder, for those of you who may or may not be familiar with that, uh, the five basic areas that lead to the most collisions with injuries and fatalities are uh, driving at an unsafe speed, speeding, uh, running a red light, failure to yield to a pedestrian in a crosswalk, failure to yield while making a left or U-turn, and failure to stop at a stop sign or limit line. So those are the focus on the five. All other traffic violations fall out, out of that. Stacy, uh, next slide, please. Thank you. So again, if you uh, go ahead and take a look at the year-to-year -year comparison, uh, they're, they're in general uh, the same. Obviously, Richmond uh, is very much ahead uh, on their focus on the five. I do want to point out, although the numbers are low for Tenderloin, if you go remember back to the um, high injury corridors and where those, the basic overlay map of the city is mostly in the Tenderloin, south of market, uh, as far as where those corridors happen. One of the major things that has happened over the last year uh, is SFMTA getting uh, a reduction through new state legislation in some areas of the city. It started in the Tenderloin, where a lot of the speed limit is now reduced down to 20 versus 25. Um, and that is slowly spreading. I just put out an email from traffic uh, letting Ingleside, Mission, and uh, Southern know that several of MTA's new areas will be spreading into their districts. So you will see more and more uh, 20 mile an hour and below uh, in those districts. Stacy, next slide, please. So here is a better uh, of what I was referring to. So you can see the traffic fatalities uh, for the first of the year. 
Um, and you'll see if you are, if you have a chance, you can go on the Vision Zero website and you'll always see a little bit of a difference uh, between those fatalities. If you look at this um, fatality number, you'll see 24. And again, that's for the first half of 22. But if you go to Vision Zero, it's actually a 21 because not every fatality equates to being part of Vision Zero. So a lot of people ask, well, what could that be? So unfortunately, we had a solo bike operator uh, who collided with something on the ground and suffered a traumatic brain injury and passed. That does not fall under Vision Zero. However, it obviously goes down in our um, numbers as, as far as being uh, somebody who collided uh, with something and passed. So again, most of those areas that you can see, again, just to point out, uh, are the areas in the tenderloin as far as high injury corridors and uh, the southern. And mostly what we see is it's mostly uh, people trying to get through the city on a north-south access or directly in the areas towards uh, freeway on or off ramps. Stacy, next slide, please. This is a little bit hard to read, but these are the locations of those uh, fatalities um, in those areas. Next slide, please, Stacey. Okay, again, vision zero traffic fatalities. On, on this, you'll see that number uh, does not, again, correspond to the original number of 24, and again, 19. Um, one of the things that we are seeing and one of the hardest things to uh, stop has been um, the stand-up power device riders. Um, two or three of those, um, and again, I, this is a loss of life and it is not to cast blame, but just to express the difficulty of trying to get to Vision Zero. Two of the three happened to have run the red lights when they collided. So. Again, not casting blame or anything like that, but it's one of the things that reaches out into the educational area, which I think we find difficult. Um, a lot of people want us to concentrate solely on vehicles, and we predominantly do, but there are occasions where we do have to at least educate, if not intervene through an enforcement action, whether it be a bicyclist, a scooter rider, um, or a pedestrian. Um, and the pedestrians are number, um, the number one casualty, as you can see in most of these. And mostly, again, it's mostly people in crosswalks uh, and it's mostly um, uh, running red lights or uh, missing them within a turn. Next uh, slide. Again, this is just a bar graph of, of both of those uh, year over year. Um, we are uh, ahead in pedestrians, unfortunately, this year. Um, the stand-up powered is clearly, again, something new. Uh, we're seeing more and more people on them. They're easy to rent, easy to pick up. Um, and we're going to have to do a lot of education on that. And you probably will see more on the road. If any of you are familiar with the demonstration about three months ago, most of these companies are trying to put technology in that prevents the motorized vehicles from actually going onto sidewalks. So you'll see more uh, of these scooters stand up kind of unicycle motors, motorized on the streets. S slide nine, please. Um, again, here's the references. Uh, 
again, not all of these are Vision Zero, uh, which are the top five, but these are the codes that we generally see uh, happening with um, collisions involving vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to pedestrian, uh, any combination you can think of. Next slide, Stacy. I do wanna add one thing before we get to the questions, because I know that what piqued a lot of this interest was an article uh, that came out in regards to our staffing. Um, and so I just would like to clarify some of that information. So in 2019, um, I'm just going to the traffic enforcement uh, aspect of what's under MTA. The issue that has come out is not everybody that works under SFPD MTA is actually in traffic enforcement. So currently at this time, we do have 47 people in MTA. I count as a sworn officer as one of them. I am not on a motorcycle enforcing. I have a captain, I have lieutenants, et cetera. So on our traffic enforcement side of those 47, we have 32 people, which includes a captain, four lieutenants, three sergeants, and 22 officers who are actually involved in enforcement. They're in four squads, which separate and bifurcate a week, two day watch squads that overlap on a Wednesday, and two swing watch squads. Um, and those numbers are not the numbers that are that are pushed out. They are not the only, this is not the only thing they do is enforcement. They do everything from escorts when we have dignitaries in. They also help with some of the stunt driving response. Um, and they do high visibility patrol. So one of the main things we've been doing, which ends at the end of the month, is we dedicate um, motorcycle officers in pairs at a minimum, but usually more to different areas of the city. So for instance, in the Tenderloin, they have been in there in the mornings and the afternoons. They've been part of safe streets with um, the children walking to and from schools. We've had them deployed out into the Ingleside district when we had a rash of shootings on Geneva and outside the Sunnydale housing projects to be in the area for high visibility, not affecting traffic stops, but to have a presence. So these officers are spread um, throughout the city on different shifts and just historically, in 2019, there were five squads of motorcycle officers um, and then two specific squads on top of that that were solely doing vision, vision to zero enforcement. Those numbers reduced moving into 2020. We had seven sergeants, 45 officers. That was the total of those five squads and two vision zero squads. We went to five and 35 in 2020, five squads, those numbers reduced um, by about uh, two sergeants and 10. Moving into 2021, we dropped down to uh, two, uh, excuse me, four squads and no Vision Zero based on staffing. And that it, those officers on Vision Zero did not handle collisions. They did not go out on the fatalities. They did not go out on the um, a lot of the uh, serious injury collisions. And then moving into 22, as I explained, we're now down to um, roughly 32. Again, that includes a captain, lieutenants, et cetera, with 22 officers full duty, two are um, out on leave. So our numbers have been drastically reduced uh, in those areas. And I'm happy to answer any questions. 
Thank you, Commander Walsh, for your presentation. Vice President Carter Overstone. Thank you, President Elias. Thank you, Commander Walsh, for the presentation. Um, just wanted to ask you about slide number four and um, about the, uh, you know, pretty significant, significant variance from one district station to another, one neighborhood to another, in terms of the percentage of um, stops that are focused on the five. And just wondering if you could speak to why, why that is. Yes, Stacey, if you could put, put that up, please. It's not up on the screen. Slide four, I believe. Thank you. So these are um, these are uh, raw percentages, and so I would I would be giving you uh, an answer that I, I can't prove any. It's like proving a negative. Um, if you look at the stations and the amount of traffic they do, and then compare it to the types of the number of staffing they have and the types of um, calls for service or self-initiated activity they do, those numbers are going to be less at a busier station. So although Tenderloin, you have this, this 100%, their actual number is probably minuscule uh, as far as how many um, tickets they've written. Also, as far as what the officer sees. So the officer, unless the captain is directing, for instance, their officers to go out to a certain location for vision zero type tickets, if those activities don't happen in front of the officer who may be in between calls for service, they're not going to stop it for that violation. So that would be the best information that I could give you. Again, it would be based on those deployments. So I can tell you from what we're doing in traffic is we are specifically deploying officers, uh, one available from traffic to go to certain areas to go ahead and get that data or get, get those stops. But one of the other things to commissioner I'd like to point out, and one of the things I'll give you anecdotally, when I was at a MTA meeting with uh, Hayes Valley about six months ago, the biggest complaint wasn't the vision zero. It was uh, type complaints. It was the overload of traffic onto side streets with all the re-engineering. So when you added in, for instance, slow streets, a lot of streets went out, uh, became, like kind of newer, smaller thoroughfares, in particular Laguna Street. So what officers would necessarily do to go out there is they might get a stop sign, which would be vision zero, but mostly it was trying to get people to get off of those streets uh, in order for uh, pedestrians uh, to, to be able to cross, et cetera. So again, we're going, we're moving to a more directed uh, and we've been doing that over the last several months to go after uh, certain areas, but we do have to be cognizant of the fact that it can't be vision zero only as much as we want it to be. If I get a complaint and a captain says, hey, can you send your team down to X because we have something going on? Perfect example, complaints in the mission were actually about um, commercial vehicles on a street that were double parking. But the real issue was people who were parking in the commercial vehicle area. So we would go out and we would go ahead and cite based on the complaint of moving those vehicles out of the roadway, as opposed to, again, a vision zero. So it's based on what we see, what complaints we get. Thank you, 
great. That's helpful. And let me ask maybe an even more basic question because I think I might be missing something more, uh, even more simple. These graphs on slide four and slide three, are these just stops made by the traffic company or do these include stops made by uh, officers who, who are not assigned to traffic who, who work out of a district station? It's everybody. If you look at the, on, okay. on slide three, if you look at, as I look at the screen, the right, that's traffic company specific. Okay, perfect. And so, okay, just a related question on variance. Um, your answer was helpful about explaining why certain districts do more or less vision zero. But I'm also just curious, it seems like there's also just a lot of variance in terms of total traffic stops from, from one district station to another. I mean, that's, a, that's an even more striking thing that jumps out at me. I mean, Southern looks like they've done nine traffic stops in that six month period on slide three. Um, you know, Mission, if my math is right, it looks like 22. Whereas like, you know, you got Richmond is, you know, you know, 468. So just, do you have any thoughts on just the 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 uh, really substantial variance in just number of total stops for any type of violation? Yeah, so I would say there's a big component that we do not track. Um, it is not something we, again, it's proving a negative. But I think if you went to probably um, looking at the Ripper reports, um, let me give you an example um, of something. And I don't, I can't answer directly to any single um station of course i can't find it but I, I looked at the quarter one 2022 um stops and i understand that in the um that report that we're talking about pedestrians we're talking about traffic etc so it is not traffic only but two categories that are captured there are no action and a warning so when you see these these are citations so stops and part of it is education so I have what I keep data for traffic that we started a couple of months ago. I have breakdowns of how many stops we did, but the traffic officers are now reporting back how many warnings they give specifically on those traffic stops, admonishments versus an actual citation. So when I go back and look for traffic, I can give you those numbers when they're operationally directed. If the officers are just out and about, they would we would have to figure out a way how to pull just traffic stops and then those warnings are no action and a warning and admonishment are kind of the same thing um, the reason i stopped you is because i uh, you went over the limit line while there was a person crossing you didn't completely do it but it's a violation i appreciate it you run them you, you send them on their way that's educational hopefully they don't do it again it's not always that we give them the site so there is a component of these numbers that officers aren't, uh, we're not reporting, which is admonishments and warning, which I would say is under education. So slides three and four are tracking citations then, not stops, that's that's what you're yes. saying? Yes. Okay, okay, thank you, that was not clear. Um, I have a, a request, a data request. I would love to see this, the information that's on charts or slides three and four, except for stops, not citations, and for years seven, 2017, 2018, 2019. 
just to get a sense of what we were doing pre-pandemic. Uh, so commissioner, I what was your first date? Did you say 2017? Yeah, se se yeah, 17, 18, 19. Yeah, I mean, we can, we can work um, to get those. The one thing I would say though is I don't think we get 27. I think um, the stop data didn't come into play till 2018. So I think it'd be from 2018 moving forward. The second thing I'd like to point out also, this is not uh, a data set in the sense, but in talking to the traffic officers who do this the most here at Traffic Company, the other thing is the extension of how long these stops are taking for a simple citation. So my officers here at Traffic, who I would say in general write more tickets than any other officer on the street, are saying that the general stop is anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes. Five to 10 minutes, for the actual ticket writing phase, running the person, et cetera. Another 10 minutes for going ahead and tagging everything on your BWC, which needs to match up, and then filling out the RIPA. Again, those fluctuate. The more you do, the faster you are. But, and depending on when you do them, some officers do the tagging right out at and the uh, RIPA right after, one after another, they take care. Others come back to the station after they've written numerous and then they sit there and go through and add all these up. Again, that is that is anecdotal. That is my conversations preparing for this with the traffic officers. I would say there's probably people who are much faster, and I would bet if you go out on patrol, the less you write traffic tickets, the longer it takes you to do a basic site. Okay, great. That's helpful. And, and yeah, if we don't have the data in 2017, I know that there was kind of a graduated implementation when AB, um, what is it, 853 was passed. So whenever we first have data, if, if it's just 18 and 19, that's that's great. But I would love to see it for stops for, for those years um, for what we have on slides three and four. Thanks so much. Appreciate your, um, your presentation. It was really helpful. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Yee. Uh, thank you, Madam. President, I uh, just want to ask uh, if you had, um, I guess, uh, uh, Peter Wansh, if you had the data on the, I guess, the scooters on the injuries and mild and severe. I, I know that uh, has dramatically increased since from 2021 and uh, on to 2022. Uh, I just want to see if you guys have, have a report there, maybe the next time you have it. To, to list it because um, they've been out in the Richmond. Uh, I see a lot of scooters laying all over the place. And some of these people are going uh, pretty fast. I think it's, uh, I think we probably have to see, see how much injury we're having from it. And um, whether maybe, I guess they can have legislation on the, to monitor, I guess, to regulate the, the riders and a device, how they go. So can we have it maybe on the next, uh, or if you have that? Yeah, Commissioner, um, just as one of the things, as I had mentioned earlier in the presentation, I will confer with our colleagues at DPH because not every collision or person falling off a scooter, et cetera, is reported to us. We would only have data if we were called to the scene and it met the requirements of an injury uh, collision. So you could, again, show up to DPA, uh, you know, SFGH, get treated for a solo collision or 
And I know we do have um, one collision of two scooters where somebody was sent to the hospital, two scooters were collided, but if it's not reported to us, so if you'll give me a chance, I would, before I can say I can produce it, let me confer with DPH and see what kind of statistical analysis they have. And then I can definitely get you any reported issues. And just as a caveat, when um, if you the Vision Zero, which is put up on the Vision Zero website, not handled by SFPD, I will tell you I only have the fatality numbers today, and I'll just repeat those. So year to date, going through August is the last update. Um, there were three um, on they call them stand up powered devices. That's how we include like a motorcycle motorized unicycle. I don't know if you've seen them all the way to motorized scooters. So anything you stand on. There have been three fatalities through August of 22. Last year, there was one through August of 21, um, and there were none recorded prior to 21. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much there. That's all I have. Giannis. Thank you, President Elias. Um, I I would like to also request uh, kind of along the same lines as uh, what Commissioner uh, Carter Oberstone just requested. Um, I'm glad to hear that we are tracking when there is an educational opportunity after a stop. I, I would like to see what those numbers look like for the last two years, right? Because, um, you know, we have all this scrutiny on our department for, for you know, a lot of reasons. And uh, when I see the numbers uh, for six months, uh, and, and I live in the mission, I'm gonna focus on that because I see these violations rampantly. And I'm glad that you pointed out that some of the, um, uh, I forget what it's called, this, you know, the, the, the streets were, the slow streets, the pedestrian streets have created new challenges because you can't go down certain streets. You have to make a right, let's say on mission and 21st to go into a street that then has barriers that don't allow. So I could see the challenges and the need for education. Uh, but I'd like to see how much work is actually happening in that area because when I see 22 in the mission and nine in Southern for a six month period, um, there's, you know, a lot to, a, a lot of improvement to be made. And I'd like to know how much of that is happening, how much of that education, how much of this you're getting pulled over and then allowed to leave is happening since, you know, COVID and in the last two years. Um, and I'd also like to get a sense of, about when, when there is this form of education and, and a, a non-citation, um, is there some form of, uh, you know, documentation that, that then gets summarized in a report somewhere so that we can compare uh, these numbers of actual violations and citations with those numbers of interactions, I guess? So, Commissioner, I, I want to uh, manage your expectations. When an officer pulls somebody over, and let's say, let's use the common phrase of giving somebody a break um, for running a stop sign, for, for whatever that violation is, and just says, hey, if you could slow down, maybe speeding, you know, there's a school two blocks away, 
Um, you're going to be heading into a 15 mile an hour zone. We get that on the stop data. And you would see that and the end result within the stop data, but you're not going to have like a checkbox form or data that says, you know, education, warning, things like that. So as Commissioner Overstone asked me, that's why I mentioned that data will have to really take a look again, managing expectations. When I look at the QADR, that includes pedestrians, it includes traffic, et cetera. So we'll have to see if we can parse that out um, to, to, to deliver that. And what would interfere with our ability to create the expectation to collect this data and, and to also include, you know, demographic data if possible, because as we're trying to ascertain what the best direction it is to take in order to address some of the, the disparities, um, I think these are, you know, opportunities for us to improve uh, how we determine uh, what training is necessary and what documentation is essential. So is it a, a training, a data collection system, or yeah. a we just haven't created the expectation to collect this information? Um, so... Just so I'm, 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 I, I, I understand all, every traffic stop is supposed to be collected. And that's what you see in the RIPA reports in the QADRs. So that is the section, whether or not I write you a citation or not, that is where you see everything uh, placed into where you have the choice of demographics, whether or not you cited the person, warned the person, searched the vehicle, even the state asked if you used force, et cetera, consent search, et cetera. So that's already all captured. That's what you see every quarter or more uh, in the QADR. What I'm trying to say is I don't know because I'm not familiar with the system and it's something that we would have to ask of whether or not we can parse out pedestrian stops and traffic stops, for instance, to give you the data that you would like to see. Because I think within that, we would get a clearer picture of how many people were warning and admonishing. And again, I don't know how deep down you would even get to that. We would just be making, I believe, an assumption that I let you go with a warning because that's what the officers checked. So we would have to kind of have a baseline on what we believe that data to be. But we have it, it's there. It's a question of, can we get it out of the state system? Because that's where you're gonna get your warnings and admonishments. And all that other stuff is already collected. That that would be ideal. I think it will give us a, a good sense of how much because if we want to, uh, you know, advance our community policing goals, I really believe that, that that piece of information will help contribute to improving those relationships, right? When we know that there are uh, opportunities to engage as we are engaging in the tenderloin and educate people and refer them to treatment, I think it's a good point to capture. And, and I'm going to encourage us to, to delve deep into those numbers and um, let's let's use that as a point of reference. So I know it will be challenging, but I think uh, it's worth the time and energy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Public comment, Sergeant. <clears throat> Thank you, Commander Walsh. 
At this time, the public is now welcome to make public comment. If you'd like to make public comment, please press star three now. And present lies, there is no public comment. Thank you, next item. Line item seven, presentation regarding reimagining policy development discussion. Thank you, Sergeant Youngblood. Uh, this presentation will be conducted by Director Diana Oliva Orache, and I will be available for questions and um, weigh in if necessary, or when necessary, rather. Diana? Thank you, Chief. Um, good evening, Commissioners, President Elias, uh, Executive Director Henderson, Chief Scott, and members of the public. Uh, my name is Diana Oliva Orache. I'm the Director of Policy and Public Affairs for the San Francisco Police Department. Um, today, as the chief indicated, I will be presenting the policy development process and how um, the plans pertain to the restructuring of the written directives and working group units of the department. Um, we've titled it Reimagining Policy Development because that, that's what it is. It's about really looking at a different way of carrying out our vision for policy development for the department. So we're hoping to provide an overview of that. Um, Sergeant Youngblood, if I could get the presentation up, that would be great coming up right now. Thank you so much. While Sergeant Youngblood is loading up the presentation, I just want to emphasize that the presentation is going to be divided in four areas. Uh, our hope is to communicate first how exactly we received input from the department around how we need to really look at a different policy development process. Uh, we ended up actually asking for recommendations, so we're hoping to be able to share those recommendations and then how that then led to the organizational structure and design that we currently are envisioning for the department moving forward. And then we wanna highlight some key steps, including transitions of units and oversight um, so that you all have a, like a thorough update of how our organization is envisioning this change. Next slide. Thank you. So as I mentioned earlier, um, we at the direction of Chief Scott um, as the policy and public uh, affairs unit facilitated several brainstorming sessions that really ended up embodying an open conversation about how we need to improve our policy development process um, for the department. Specifically, we ended up recruiting members from all ranks and classifications. So we ended up recruiting members from our sworn side and professional side or our civilian side of the department that were part of all the different units that are represented on the actual slide. And we ended up facilitating discussions on key questions, on questions such as how do we improve on our policy development process? How do we actually create more of a thorough process and oversight? How do we end up really making sure that we're efficient? And at the same time, how do we ensure that there is this community feedback and vision of reform that we are accountable to according to the Department of Justice? We ended up moving forward with about nine, um, nine to 10 sessions in total, five really dedicated specifically to looking at um, more in-depth uh, representation of the members that you see here. And then additional, the additional sessions were just internal conversations with the executive branch of the department, including the chief to really figure out how best do we organize some of the recommendations that were brought up with, with these members. Next slide, please. So there were nine recommendations that were highlighted in these sessions. 
Um, as you see on this slide, we have the nine sort of listed in the summarized version. I'll point out a couple of things. One of the first things that we heard was that there needed to be a transition of the policy writing and the development of policies outside of the current unit and into the oversight of the chief of staff. Why the chief of staff? There was a really strong sentiment by the members of the department that it would be better suited if there was an oversight closer to the chief of police and the chief of staff bureau, since that's the entity that actually works closest with both community constituents and also the police commission. So it would make sense to be able to look at a centralized unit that would actually fall under the chief of staff. Another recommendation that I'll highlight is that there was a real emphasis um, and a strong desire by all the sessions to redefine working groups, right? To really focus on trying to figure out how do we actually evaluate our policy proposals in a way that's a lot more meaningful, where we would have sort of a working group membership that would be expanded, but that would also be able to be um, sort of integrated in a way where it was more intentional. Now I have to say that these recommendations and these sessions happened almost simultaneously while we were going through the changes with DGO 3.01. And so you'll see that some of these changes are actually um, very similar to the changes that you saw in that department general order, which is a good thing, right? Um, because it really spoke to some of the, the need and there was a match there in 301 and the recommendations that we had with our sworn and professional staff. Another thing I would highlight is that there was a suggestion to really look at a honeymoon phase um, in terms of a practical application of our DGOs. That's something that I think that we should definitely consider on how that would look like in the future. There was a strong sentiment in this group of really figuring out you know, how we can actually apply or even pilot some of our DGOs so that we really try to adjust at the same time. And so to that point, another recommendation was really looking at a tier system which again, you see reflected in, in DGO 3.01. Um, it was a really strong desire to really look at, can we end up really batching some of our DGOs moving forward so that that way we're really looking at how do we get better at our policy development process. And while there are some that need to move pretty quickly in terms of changes, given state law changes, given um, some of the community outcry, given some of the changes that we need immediately for the department, um, given some of the importance of how do we keep our officers really safe and aware of how to actually move forward with modern policing? All of that uh, was incorporated in, in terms of our recommendation process. And so again, there's a mirroring there with 3.01 that we wanna highlight in terms of the recommendations. These nine were the overlay of all the sessions. Um, so again, I'm happy to answer questions at the end if you have more questions regarding these. Um, and I would just, finalize this slide with just emphasizing that the biggest thing here was to see that there was a stronger organizational oversight and a change um, to a different part of the department. Next slide, please. So in terms of the organization itself, um, after the recommendations, the chief um, and his command staff really sat down to really think about how this would actually move forward in terms of structure internally in the organization. So as I mentioned earlier, the recommendation was to move forward with the chief of staff oversight for the reasons that I've mentioned previously. Um, specifically, the components that were outlined were one, the community and policy working group unit really needed to stay under policy and public affairs. Um, that's actually the, the unit that I oversee. Since we work really closely with community groups around policy development, it made sense to be able to move forward with looking at that component under policy and public affairs. On the other hand, when it came to policy development, 
Um, it was recommended by uh, all the members, both professional and sworn, that there be a policy development unit that would actually come into the chief of staff as sort of a new component of this policy development process that would bring in written directives. Um, next slide, please. The policy development division would basically move forward with looking at coordinating existing policy updates, and they would also be responsible for looking at researching national and local best practices. Um, but more importantly, they would be charged with look at, at with also um, consulting with SMEs or subject matter experts. The WDU component would continue functioning as it does today, where there would be an administrative sort of oversight. They would continue managing the DPA uh, police commission relationship and also the simultaneous concurrence process, but they would function um, sort of as an administrative wing, which is really important to the department to continue moving forward the policy. Both of these components would need to be staffed. Um, some of them would be a mix of well, the written directives unit specifically would be a mix between SORN and professional staff. The policy writing unit, fortunately, we were awarded and budgeted additional staff to bring over that would be professional staff that would have an expertise in policy writing that would be hired to do this type of work. Next slide. As I mentioned earlier, the strongest recommendation we heard was that the community and policy working group component needed to also, uh, like I mentioned earlier, really make sure to collaborate and problem solve around different areas of feedback that the community believes that policing should consider. So uh, one of the objectives would be to institutionalize like an actual platform to be able to get more of an organized loop when it came to feedback into our policy development process. Um, again, this community and policy working group would fall under policy and public affairs. Next slide. So in terms of next steps, um, again, we were funded to be able to look at hiring additional staff, both for the working group component and for the policy development component. We're in the phase right now where we're looking at, um, since September, we were actually given um, the approval, but the hiring authority is still pending. So we're working with the mayor's office and the Department of Human Resources to finalize our staffing and to give us the green light to move forward with looking at interviews and hiring candidates and passing through our background phase. Our hope and our plan is that by the end of November, we would be pretty much done, if not sooner. Um, we're probably about halfway into our hiring process and approvals. Um, but then after, shortly after that, we're hoping to onboard to train staff so that we end up making sure that we end up creating a more organized structure like it was envisioned um, with, the, with the prior slides. Then uh, the expectation of the staff is going to be to actually meet internally and externally uh, with a lot of our key stakeholders to continue having conversations of how do we best conduct working groups? How do we not commit mistakes from the past? How do we learn from the past? How do we continue moving forward? And then the hope is then to work more intentionally on an organized structure where there would be consistency in the way that we run working groups, really mirroring, again, best practices and making sure that we're consistent and then working through, through January with the police commission, with DPA and any other key stakeholders to make sure that we're clear about the process. So that's some of our next steps. Next slide. I'm happy to take any questions and I hope I met the 10 minute marker um, and uh, and I'll stop there. Thank you, you did meet the 10 so we appreciate it. I think it's, um, 
really important that, you know, I think sometimes we miss is that the effort that is being put into actually hiring policy writers uh, and individuals that have experience running working groups. Um, and it's my understanding that with this new organization, those two um, skill sets will be added to um, this unit to provide us better quality policy writing and also to, I think, helping facilitate working groups because that is a very um, special skill set that not necessarily everyone has. Um, and so I really think that that is a great, going to be a great addition to the unit. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Commissioner Benedicto. I think, I think Chief might have been raising his hand if he wanted to say something first, Chief. The, uh, President, uh, okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. I was just going to add before uh, before we get too far to the questions, a good example we believe as far as that we, we term it the honeymoon phase that was suggested by members is really what just played out with 5.01, where we implemented a policy, a very you know thoughtful policy, but there was a lot of feedback after implementation. That feedback was vetted and given to the commission for consideration and Although not officially a honeymoon period, I, I think that is what that can look like if we incorporate that. Probably wouldn't be necessary for every policy, I would think, but the opportunity to do that, I think, meant a lot to the members who gave feedback. I think now we have an even better policy because of that feedback. So that's just, I wanted to highlight that because I think that's what that can look like if we make that a regular um, part of how we conduct our policy business. Thank you, Commissioner. Yes, thank you. I, I, I agree with you, Chief. I think that uh, the recent rapid turnaround on on the 5.01 revisions was uh, a great example of the, the sort of positive feedback loop we can get. And I hope that um, you know if, if this allows us to continue to do that, I'm definitely in support of that. I definitely want to echo what President Elias said, and that you know facilitating working groups is such uh, a unique skill. The department has off uh, you know. Multiple members of of the command staff have have you know stepped into that role ably over the years, but it's always been, you know, not necessarily their domain. You know, we've been lucky, like in the nine point zero one process. I wanted to provide. Uh, we've mentioned this before, but thank you to the to, uh, the controller's office and Alice Castinger, the controller's team, who's helped facilitate the working groups. But to the extent that we can have more of that expertise in house at the department, I think uh, the commission would much appreciate that. <clears throat> um, Director Olivia Rocha, just a couple of quick questions. So. Right now, there's a written directives unit that sits inside the strategic management bureau. In, uh, under the new structure, what what does that look like? Is it just completely subsumed under this new policy development uh, area, or what, what does that structure look like compared to to the current structure? So that's actually right. The understanding would be um, if we could go back to the slide with the chart, Sergeant Youngblood, so you so everyone could see the way that the structure would be assembled. Yeah, that's slide four. Right, slide four, if you don't mind. Thank you. So as you see, written directives is actually listed under the policy development unit. So it would actually come um, away from SMB, the Strategic Management Bureau, and it would actually be situated here and work closely with the policy writing team. Got it, but SMB still exists as another unit with, with responsibilities after written directives is taken out okay. of it. Correct. So the Strategic Management Bureau has a lot of additional responsibilities that would still stay intact. So some of the responsibilities are, for example, our budget oversight, technology, 
uh, the reform process, the next phase of auditing reforms and the success of moving forward with looking at even our new Hillard-Hines contracting process, all of that would stay consistent with the Strategic Management Bureau. Anything related to policy development, though, that would actually shift over to either the policy and public affairs area or directly under the chief of staff under policy development. Got it. That makes sense. And would the policy development unit, would that be headed up by a sworn officer or a civilian administrator? Or do we not know yet? Chief, I'll let you answer that question. Yeah, I'll answer that. So originally the recommendation was a, a sworn at a commander level, but in order to do that, we have to reallocate one of our existing commanders. Um, I, we are, I'm leaning toward professional staff and, and actually last week's conversation was part of what I was considering. And uh, last week's conversation when Commissioner Yanez, you know, really made a case for keeping consistency in the community engagement division, the commander, I think specifically, he said they should stay there for a long time. And this is something that, that was already weighing heavy on this decision. And I, I do think uh, we, we are able to get a high level professional staff um, in that position. And I think that'll give us more consistency. Our sworn members, you know, because of retirements and the need to reassign, reassign turn over a lot. And I really do believe uh, we're better off when we have consistency and a little bit of longevity in those positions. S similar to what, what Commissioner Yannis said about community engagement. So uh, both things kind of wait, wait, are weighing on this decision. We can go either way. The lean right now is professional staff. Got it. And then the actual staffers in policy writing and written directives would be a mix of sworn and, and professional staff? Yes, sir. Correct. Would there be sort of a subhead that heads up the policy working unit and the written directives unit? Right now, it really depends on the actual requisitions that end up pushing through. Um, so that is the plan to actually have like high level managers that support the policy development so that that way that it functions almost like as a wing or a tier system. And we have analysts that work under that that continue doing the work. Um, but right now it's not reflected because we are really looking at trying to solidify what the staffing makeup will be based on the budgeting uh, Department of Human Resource and Mayor's Office approval. Uh, thanks. That's uh, I, I think a lot of these changes uh, seem like they'll, especially the reorganization, seems like it'll be improved. So congratulations on getting that. We just need to get you to get the commission a team of policy analysts too now since you guys have the magic. Well, we'd love your support to advocate with us in the budget process so that we can continue having this staff. <laughs> That's all I have. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to go Director Henderson. Are you on mute? Oh, no. I was on mute. Thank you. Okay. Sorry about that. No worries. Uh, so, I, first of all, I just uh, I really want to say how much I appreciate the department's willingness to engage on this subject. It's really something that I think has been super important part of what I believe was behind the re-engagement of DPA from OCC was an effort to refocus on expanding both reform and accountability. And so the policy development is key to that. Um, and languishing DGOs have been a problem for decades and I don't think is any argument uh, there in terms of how far behind things have come on the DGO and why 
it's so important now more than ever that we approach this with uh, earnest. And I think we are doing that. Um, I will say, though, that no plans are going to be successful unless the right people are in leadership roles uh, and the department leadership prioritizes timely policy development that comports with the best practices. And so that said, uh, if I just reference uh, the presentation back to slide three at R6 regarding the working group formation and R8 regarding uh, DGO tiers, all of that is already, and we don't need to pull it up, but just referencing just in case people want to go back and look through their notes, that all of that is already in DGO 3.01. And so the department hasn't implemented them, and I, I can't get past that because 3.01 uh, went live some time ago, and we don't have to go back to try and reprioritize these things with less efficient ways if we can just do that. So I would ask that from this, we can get a commitment that 3.01 could go live. And then the second point that I want to make is that concerning uh, slide five under the proposed plan, I'd ask that that be revisited uh, because that plan silos DPA and uh, having to communicate through uh, written directive unit only and not with the subject matter experts. That makes absolutely no sense. And the department's theoretical policies writing team uh, should not be writing, managing, I'm not, not writing, uh, the written directive should not be managing and should not be communicating uh, with the department to or through DPA independently without having us access to the subject matter experts. The new DGO 3.1 very clearly and expressly states that DGA, DPA has the ability and can work directly with the subject matter experts, the SMEs, and we do not want that to be changed. So if this is an indication of that changing, I think that is a huge problem and a step backwards. So I just wanted to flag those two items. Um, for you, not to end on a bad note, because I do think that these steps are moving forward. I just want to make sure that as we move forward, we stay consistent with being as effective as we can, as efficient as we can, as reflective of best practices as we can. I think all the work that went into 3.01 is reflective of that, and I just want to make sure that it's captured, and I'm trying to be as vigilant as I can to make sure we don't backslide into building inefficiencies back into the system that we just accomplished or we just conquered with 3.01. So those are my two points. Go ahead, Chief. I see you. Yeah, no, I just wanted to respond. Uh, thank you, Derek Anderson. So yeah, the uh, tier system was in part, in large part, informed by these work group sessions that we had. And as you might recall, we were in the process of finalizing 3.01 during the same time we were doing these work group sessions. And that information was provided to uh, President Elias uh, as we were, were working through 3.01. So in large part, that, that tier system, there was some DPA input, but that tier system came from those meetings and Commissioner Elias was uh, uh, kind enough to, to allow us to incorporate that into the draft that went to the commission. The other thing I just want to record in terms of the SMEs, uh, just so everybody is aware of how we are doing that, the SMEs will have uh, DPA policy people would have will have access to the SMEs. What I demand on my side 
is visibility from exec and the sponsors because what I don't want, and we had this happen in the past, is SMEs making agreements for the department before those things are flushed out and discussed. And problem in the past was the reason we had to shut it down for a minute. But I, I say this publicly so everybody can hear it. Your folks will have access to the SMEs. We have an internal process to make sure that whoever the executive sponsor is, is made aware of those conversations. So we're not committing to things before we have approval and, and buy-in from uh, the proper people in, in the department. And Chief, I think you're, you're correct. And I think it's a fine balance in trying to figure out the distinction between access and authority and balancing it through the various administrative roles from the department. And so I'm, I'm confident that we'll be able to work that out sitting at the table. I just, I'm, I'm leery of all of some of the past transgressions that we've had in the past as well with, you know, time wasted working with SMEs that could not speak on behalf of the department or did speak on behalf of the department. It's my concern as well. And so, and I understand that you want to balance that with a role from written directives. I just want to make sure that it's a role that is actively engaged and not a delay or a stall to the process because we have, we just have so much to do and to catch up on. So I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to sort it out. I just want to make sure that we're at the table and stay in communication to make sure that we keep moving it forward. So thank you. And our intent, just to add a little bit more to, to also what we've committed to in terms of next steps, we've committed to making sure that we build on a process that works. You know, so I do want to emphasize that we, we have to be able to talk about sort of the pros and cons of the way that this delivery system, even currently today, how written directives is functioning, what needs to be carried over, and then how do we envision like the new staff coming on board and how do they serve the role. So the intent is really not to be able to kind of destroy anything that we're building today that actually works, it's to build it. Uh, I think the the way that uh, we imagine just the organizational piece, we wanna be clear on responsibilities, but certainly I think it's about having open communication about what works and what doesn't, if something were to need to be adjusted. Great, thank you. Uh, Vice President Carter-Overstone. Thank you, President Elias. Thanks for the presentation, Director. Um, could you just explain one more time, just so in this new structure, we've got written directives, policy writing, and policy development. Could you just explain kind of the difference between those three in terms of the actual work that they're doing? So if you look back on slide, um, let's see, look at the actual slide. Four. Slide, slide four. four and five. So if we could lift that up, Sergeant Yabla, thank you. I see you working. Thank you. So on one side, in terms of the organizational structure, I think that's kind of the best way to differentiate the roles because you see it listed here in terms of titles. So on one hand, the community and policy working group unit is specifically responsible to look at feedback coming in from the community, translating recommendations specifically into the DGO process. So for example, 9.01, like just to use that example, because I think we've learned a lot from that process, you would be just as Commissioner Benedicto just indicated, we would be having someone internal that, that can facilitate just like the controller's office did, would go ahead and actually create recommendations, a recommendations grid, and be able to authentically actually provide input 
into the DGO process. That would be the responsibility of the community policy working group unit. On the other hand, in terms of policy development, policy development, the writing portion of that would be responsible for best practices, researching, making sure we're clear with state legislation, some of the neighboring you know, city and counties, what are they doing, really making sure that we're up to speed on that aspect, and then also talking to the SMEs about what actually should be included in terms of a revision or a new draft when it comes to the DGO development process. The written directives piece is envisioned to continue doing somewhat similar roles to today, which is facilitating the simultaneous concurrence, keeping track of the actual DGO process. So that means looking at start from finish, making sure that all the steps are really met according to 3.01 and ensuring that everything is documented accordingly, accordingly to then reach the police commission. So they function more as the administrators of making sure that we have a process that's documented, that's in, in possibly an electronic version where we can track who edits, right? And then how does that reach then eventually to the police commission and then moves on to meet and confer if need be. I hope that explains it. Yeah, no, that does explain it. I guess I just I had a little bit of a question of what role written directives was really playing at this point in the new structure. But um, I, I think what you said kind of clarifies that. Um, and then you spent a fair amount of your presentation talking about community input. And I'm just wondering if this under this new structure, the department plans to focus on that more in the future for its policy development. So absolutely, our commitment um, has been, I think, first of all, it's part of our reform process. That's how I opened up in the conversation. We are, there has been many findings that the department needs to continue improving how to build trust, but also how to actually engage in a policy development process that includes community input. So we absolutely want to be able to continue getting better every single year, I would say, if not day, on how we integrate community into this process. Like I said earlier, I think 9.01 is a clear example. I think we there are other DGOs, like the community policing DGO, uh, where I think we've learned how to better move forward with community input. Um, and there's, you know, I could, I could name a, a bunch, you know, but I, what we would like to strive for, the vision is trying to have a, a process that's organized across all DGOs where we work really closely with DPA and the commission to make sure that there is input coming from the community in a very intentional way. Right, and I guess what I'm trying to understand is what that actually means in practice, you know, in real life, because currently as a matter of course, when the department uh, revises a DGO, there is no community outreach of any kind. There's no working group even, there's no community listening sessions. There's not even a public draft of the DGO. Um, until the very, very end. So right now, kind of the status quo is zero community input. And so I'm just kind of trying to understand what 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 it looks like for the future. Does that mean a, a greater percentage of DGOs will have some, some amount of community outreach or the same percentages now, but we'll have a different structure? You know, just what does it mean tangibly? So I think, well, first of all, there has been working groups assembled according to the written directive that gets decided by the chief of police and the president of our police commission. I would say we did halt the process of working groups. I think when you onboarded simply because we were looking at this re-envisioning. So um, I think probably, you know, in the future, we're hoping that now that you're with us sort of long-term, you'll be able to see the way that the new structure sort of incorporates from the past, but also moves forward with looking at 
making sure that working groups are a part of our intentional development process. So it has, in other words, we have had working groups. It's just that we haven't had it in the course of the last nine months, simply because we've been stalled on looking at how do we better move forward with a structure that's going to be conducive, that's going to work, um, and that at the same time deals with all the transitions that we've dealt with. So I just want to clarify that because I don't think that, um, you know, I, I could name a bunch of examples. One of them is like the domestic violence DGO. I think that's probably the closest one. That right. I could name the examples too, but they're clearly the exception, not the rule. And I guess I'm just trying to understand. I mean, I don't, we can go to percentages, but I think you'd agree. I mean, would you say 90% never had one? So I'm just, I, I guess I'm trying to focus on the future though, but like, what does the future look like with this new plan? Why, how is it different than what we're doing now? Let me, uh, let me if I could jump in. Yeah, so one of the things that we're trying to accomplish, Vice uh, President, is the consistency of really a professional facilitator. How we did it in the past was the executive sponsor or and or the subject matter expert conducted the working groups. And th there were exceptions, you know, tasers, use of force, some of the bigger DGOs, there were exceptions, but uh, the working groups were facilitated by whoever was assigned that DGO. Inconsistencies, different styles, uh, we, we, it just, it, it didn't meet the standard of where we need to be. So this process is designed, number one, to get a person who actually, that's what they do, uh, will have the consistency, um, not only the DGOs that are mandated to have working groups, but as you pointed out, there are other issues that, that, that come up where working groups just make sense to do for the community input and, and for the spirit of what we're trying to do here. So we do expect a better product. We do expect the consistency. We expect better tracking. One of the things that we found out in October when we paused our working groups is we just weren't where we needed to be on tracking. So the recommendations grid that's been implemented over the past year or so was a product of just better tracking. So those things are expected. We expect those to be much, much better than they have been in the past and much more consistent. Great, thanks, Chief. And and um, you know, as others have said, I really welcome having someone on staff who's just you know a facilitator and knows how to run a working group and have that in house. I think the controller's office has done a great job for 9.01, but we can't ask them to do that every time, obviously. But I guess I'll just ask the question one more time because I never really heard an answer, which is under our new structure, will we be having more community? Um, Outreach. Will we be having more community outreach than we've had in the past? Because um, I, I understand we'll have more professional staff. It'll be better tracked. It'll be more consistent. But I'm asking if we'll, we'll be having more because right now the department really is doing almost none um, in terms of its DGO revisions. That, that's really just all I'm asking. Like in the future, will we be having more community outreach? as part of the DGO revision process? That, that's, that's just, that's the question. Yes, by design, by policy, um, and I'm gonna respectfully disagree with you about none, but neither here nor there. But the answer is yes, because by design, we are touching DGOs much more often we, than we ever have. And with that, the commission has mandated work groups for a number of those DGOs. So just by design, we will be having more. I, I, I anticipate there'll be DGOs or things that will come up outside of this process where working groups will be appropriate and necessary. So I anticipate that that answer is yes as well. But just the DGO process 
as it's laid out right now, that answer is yes. Great, thank you. That's everything for me. Quick question. Will, um, can you pull up slide four? Yeah. So will Director McGuire be in charge of the policy development or pu policy and public affairs? That, that will go under the chief of staff umbrella when we make the transition and the policy and public affairs will be under Director uh, Libra Arote's unit. Wait, I'm so, sorry, Chief. I, I couldn't hear you. You said it's go the chief of staff, and who will the chief of staff? That, so all of it will be under the chief of staff. That that, oh. that entire body of work will be under chief of staff in that part of the department. And okay, that, President Elias, I'm the director of the policy and public affairs okay. unit. I would be actually overseeing that component. And the chief of staff would be the policy development unit has not moved over to the chief of staff yet. So as we feel, get these positions filled up, that will move over to the chief of staff. And who's the chief of staff? I'm sorry if I missed that. Bob Moser. Okay, got it. Great, thank you. Right now, um, acting chief of staff, Flaherty. Okay, is, got it. Right, because I, well, you, yeah, I was trying to figure out which side of the shop, but all right, got it. Um, no more, no one else is in the queue. Can we go to public comment? Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item seven, please press star three now. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Caller, you have two minutes. Hi, um, I had a question. So on September 6th, um, Resolution 220896 was recently unanimously voted or passed by the Board of Supervisors decriminalizing plant-based psychedelics. It also calls for San Francisco police to make investigations and arrests related to the use of these plants as the lowest prior priority. Are there any specific poli policies changed or have there been new policies created supporting this resolution? And if so, what? President Lyons, that is the end of public comment. Thank you. Next item. Line item eight. Discussion and possible action to approve revised Department General Order 8.01, Major and Critical Incident Evaluation and Notifications, for the department to use in meeting and conferring with the San Francisco Police Officers Association as required by law. Discussion and possible action. Thank you. Oops. Thank you, Sergeant Youngblood. Um, Mr.'s 8.01 is a collaborative effort by the department and uh, the Department of Police Accountability had a huge part in us revising this DGO. I just want to highlight some of the um, some of the changes. And as the DGO title reads, the major and critical incident evaluation and notification, it really deals with that issue, major incidents and the requirements to notify and the requirements of what officers, supervisors, and um, commanding officers do once they arrive at the scene. Just a few of the highlights. Um, the responding officers or responding unit, I know there's been questions from the commission on some of our critical incidents about who's in charge, 
How do we know who's in charge? How do we designate? Sorry, sorry, Chief. I um, I think we went over this last week and we put it over because you wanted to make that one change, which you yeah. made and we posted. So I, not to cut you off, but I just wanted to save you some time because um, yes. Commissioner Byrne had asked that we put it over so that we can publish it, which we did to the public. And so I think nothing's changed since that time, right? That's correct. Right. Okay. So at this point, I maybe, I, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to interrupt you, but I just wanted to save some time. If, if we're good, maybe we can just move on to the question and answer section. Yes, thank you. Thank you, sorry. Commissioner Benedicto, you're in the queue. Yeah, I uh, don't have a specific question. I just wanted to thank the department and uh, DPA. We, wor we worked through this one for a number of months going back and forth, and I'm, I'm quite pleased with uh, the final product. I think it represents, you know, uh, good compromises on all the points where, you know, in some areas the commission wanted more detail. And so I think we met halfway in a lot of those. So I'm, I'm quite happy with this, with this product, happy we got to make sure we published uh, the final changes. So uh, I'd be happy at the conclusion of, of any other commissioner's questions to um, make a motion to uh, adopt 8.01 to send to, to meet and confirm. Great. Um, I'll take that as a motion. Uh, I'll get a second, but I think uh, Vice President Carter Overstone's in the queue and then Director Henderson. I'll, I'll defer to Director Henderson. We'll go after. Thank you. I just had uh, just two points that I wanted to make because uh, I do think that this is a significant step forward. I just want to remind the uh, audience that this is one of those DGOs that had not been updated since 1994. And so I just hope it's not lost on folks how important that, that this DGO is going to be. And I just wanted to thank uh, the collaborative effort, both from the department uh, and my policy team, uh, in large part, uh, Jermaine Jones uh, and Janelle Kaywood as well for working on this and bringing it over the finish line, hopefully with the upcoming vote. That's it. Thank you. Vice President Carter Overstone, were you going to second that motion or did you want to? Just a quick comment. Um, don't worry, I won't be asking about whether there is community input for this one. I think we all know the answer to that anyway. Um, I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to, to uh, give an, uh, a piggyback on what Director Henderson says and, and give a special shout out to Jermaine Jones for his particularly strong work on this DGO over really two years of hard work. Um, a lot of the most important work on this commission happens um, outside the public's view and isn't particularly glamorous. And I think Jermaine um, really mastered this area and brought to bear, um, you know, what the nationally recognized evidence-based best practices were and ensured that, um, you know, those made it into this DGO. So uh, not, not all heroes wear capes. So shout out to Jermaine. Um, just wanted to call that out. Was that a second after all that? I will I will second uh, Commissioner Benedicto's motion. Thank you. Sergeant, can we do public comment and then vote? Jermaine doesn't wear a cape. I think he rides a bike, though, which is like a, a motorcycle, which is pretty cool. <laughs> For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item eight, please press star three now. And there is no public comment. On the motion for 801 for meet and confer, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? 
Yes. Commissioner Mandico is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. Uh, President Elias is yes. The You have seven yeses. Thank you. Next item, please. Line item nine, public comment on all matters pertaining to item 11 below closed session, including public comment on item 10, but whether to hold item 11 in closed session. If you would like to make public comment, please press star three now. And there is no public comment. Item Thank 10, you. vote on whether to hold item 11 in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.10, action. I'll make a motion. Are you I'll second. second. Thank I'll you. second. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone is yes. And President Elias? Yes. President Elias is yes. I will take us into closed session. Thank you. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
next, uh, I think next item. Line item 12, vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion on item 11 held in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.12A, action. Commissioners, um, I would like to make a motion to disclose line item 11A um, because it does not uh, it does not meet any of the exceptions in the Brown Act or the Sunshine Act and should therefore be disclosed to the public. I'm going to second that motion. Um, I concur with Vice President Carter Oberstone that the item uh, discussed falls outside of any of the exceptions, and there's no reason it couldn't be um, discussed in open session or discussed in closed session and disclosed afterward as the motion is. So I'll second the motion. Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 12, please press star three now. And there is no public comment on the motion. Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Uh, no. Commissioner Yee is no. Vice President Carter Oberstone? Yes. President Carter Oberstone is yes, and President Elias. Yes. Vice President Elias says yes. You have six yeses. Great. All right. Wait a minute. Don't we have to say something about what happened on 11A to actually make the disclosure now? I think what they can do is post um, the letter that was in the closed session to the website, to our commission website. And then I think right. the minutes from the 11A portion will become part of the open record minutes. Is that? Deputy City Attorney Porianda, do you have a view on this? So at this point, you can give a brief summary of um, what you wish to disclose as to 11A. Okay, brief summary. And I think we'll, we'll disclose the minutes as Commissioner Benedicto, I think, correctly suggested, and also disclose the letter that the police officers union sent. The, this line item had to do with uh, DGO 5.01. The police officers union made um, a single suggested change um, um, as it relates to the duty to intercede. And rather than creating a duty to, to intercede when an officer engages in any, quote, unconstitutional or illegal conduct, the POA wanted to replace that language with um, interceding only when an officer is engaging in excessive use of force. Um, the commission unanimously voted to approve that policy change um, because um, it, the, the prior language would have created a duty to intercede for um, violations that had nothing to do with excessive force, which is, of course, the, the whole subject area covered by 5.01. Is that sufficient, uh, Zach? That is sufficient. Okay, great. Next item. Line item 13, adjournment action item. Have a good night. Thank you all. Good night.